Look, I was going to go easy on you, not to hurt your feelings, but I'm only going to get this one chance. This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's up, guys? My Take Radio episode 208 for Thursday, December 19th, 2013. I'm your host, Rich, and our caller number is 347-324-3541. Again, our caller number 347-324-3541. All right, so we are uh, experiencing some video issues on our end on the GFQ side of things. Um, John is telling me that he can actually see the audio in Skype but it wasn't making it to the mixer. No big deal. You know, it happens. Uh, This is the last episode of MTR for 2013, so we are going to go out with a bang. We're going to be joined by a lot of our MTR staff for a litany of different things. Uh, Ben's going to chime in for some MMA because there were a lot of huge news that went on this past week on the MMA front. I know Quark and Blade may be joining us on the wrestling side of things. I'm sure Slick will also be joining us as well. Unfortunately, like I said, we got some technical issues, so we can't really do anything about the video. It's all good. You know, shit happens, but at least you guys can get some audio for your troubles. Like I said, the call the number 347-324-3541. Again, 347-324-3541. All right, so we got a lot of stuff to get out of the way. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the M- the Stitcher Awards are currently going on. The voting goes uh the voting ends on december 22nd uh you can vote once a day we are up for nominations in a couple of categories so definitely happy about that sports commentary um also entertainment and pop culture and gaming as well so i'd like to take the opportunity and thank all of you that have voted for us and nominated us in all those categories i am very honored to see so many of you guys going out there and making sure that the show is checked out and you guys can really enjoy what we're doing. There's definitely stiff competition um, on the sports commentary side. We're competing against some of our own colleagues, um, our colleagues from Mat Men, which are also up for a nomination. Uh, We're also stiff competition on the entertainment front and definitely some serious competition on the other side of the coin with the gaming front because there's so many great gaming shows out there doing what they're, you know, doing their thing. And, you know, it's a, every vote counts. And again, I appreciate those of you that have voted thus far. It really means a lot. But as always, if you want to keep voting, you can vote every day up until December 22nd, which is the cutoff. 
Speaking of which, if you are using Stitcher to listen to My Take Radio, make sure to enter My Take in the promo code and you'll be eligible to win $100 courtesy of us and Stitcher as well. Just a, a way to win a little bit of money and also support the show at the same time. MTR is also now available on Spreaker with the hope of it being available on the iHeartRadio network within the coming weeks. We're trying to get that squared away. Hopefully we'll have it set up by the time the new year starts. So that's going to be another thing we're going to be working on. And we're also going to be trying to do some other enhancements to video. I just found out that YouTube will allow you to broadcast live without a subscriber limit. Initially, um, the subscriber limit was 100 subscribers but now it is open to anybody so you could do youtube live and we're going to try and do more google hangouts and try and do some really cool stuff on that end as well because our google plus audience has been growing quite a bit a lot of people are engaging us on google plus so we want to make sure that we have that outlet covered as well all right so we got a lot of content on mytakeradio.com this week, including the return of Buried. Uh, Santee's Face Heel of the Week is back on. We got some new stuff from Slick. We got some movie trailers that I've been putting up. And hopefully, during the next two weeks that we're not on air, I'll be able to get out a ton of other content. And there may still be some other uh, pre-recorded stuff that we may put on air in the coming weeks. So be on the lookout for that as well. The other thing I did want to address was um, something that I was going to talk about last week, but I wanted to wait for confirmation beforehand so that I can discuss it. And that is an issue we had with um, Getty Images. I believe I kind of touched on it last week, but I wanted to give you guys um, all the details now that it's over and done with and behind us so I can share it with you guys freely. A couple of, I'd say a couple of, Three, four months back, we covered the Consumer Electronics event here in New York City, and one of our vendors that was gracious enough to meet with us was Sharp, and we got to see a lot of great tech, a lot of great hardware, and shortly after we met with them, we did a write-up of our experience showcasing some of the great hardware, including a very large 90-inch television that was shown off, and what we ended up doing was we posted a picture of the television on the site and these were images that were given to us by sharp so we were very happy that they sent us some really cool high resolution images we could share with you guys Uh, a couple of weeks back shortly after thanksgiving i actually received a package from getty images and uh, pretty much they said that we were using an image of theirs without any rights without any permission um The funny thing about it was it wasn't so much that we were using the image, but get this, turns out that for using that image, they wanted me to pay them $875, not a couple of bucks, not 50 or a hundred dollars, 875, almost a thousand dollars. So of course, you know, I looked at the image in question and it sure enough, it was one of the images from sharp of a woman diving into a pool that was being shown on their TV and um, Getty wanted to be paid. So luckily I still had all my information from uh, Sharp and I reached out to their PR department. And of course there were a lot of apologies and it turns out that they actually licensed the images for their use, but it was a different type of licensing that was required to disperse the images to Uh, media outlets so needless to say sharp took care of it and we were off the hook and didn't have to pay 
the $875. Now, the thing about that is, and I wanted to share this with a lot of you guys, because this also goes to our staff and even those of you that have websites and broadcasts that, you know, need to be checked out. Um, here's the thing, and you guys can take this with a grain of salt or not, but please, I cannot stress enough. If you're getting images online, whether it's it's Google or whether it's G, you know, any any sort of images, do yourselves a favor and um, do not do not do not put yourselves out there and so and not source your images because that that's the big problem right there. It's it's one of those things where, you know, it's it's crazy because people people will look at it and say, oh, you know, this you're using our images without our permission, et cetera, et cetera. Really, really crazy stuff. Uh, again, I cannot stress enough. Make sure that you are, you know, you're you're sourcing everything because, like I said, that little misunderstanding almost cost us nearly a thousand dollars. So if you're getting images, even if it's on Google and you think it's open source, make sure to check. If you got to call somebody or you got to email somebody and ask them for permission, please make sure to do that because. Like I said, we try to source everything we use, whether it's stuff from WWE's uh, website or anywhere. We try to get um, sources as often as possible. So please, I cannot stress it enough for those of you that are running your own websites to take the opportunity and source your stuff. And if you need images, you can go to plenty of places that give images out for free. So again, just a a lesson I wanted to pass on to those of you um, on the site. And um, figured I'd share it with you. It seems I'm getting a communique from Slick. Let me see what this is. Anyway, Slick is asking me if uh, everything is okay. I Everything is fine. <laughs> I think that the whole lack of video is messing things up. So uh, let me just answer him back. Hold on one second, guys. I apologize. Anyway, as I was saying, now that everything is clear, uh, you know, I figured I'd share that with you guys. Getty was, like I said, nice enough to confirm that, um, you know, we're in the clear. All right. Slick is telling me that those of you that are on the site and are seeing the GFQ stream, do yourselves a favor and press the Mixler button and mute the other stream so you guys can listen to the show because clearly there's all kinds of issues going on and uh, people seem to be having problems. If you guys are in the chat and are hearing the Mixler feed, please let me know so that, you know, I can make sure everything is running on my end. Otherwise I got to stop the show briefly and try and get everything up and running. As far as I know, we are on, you know, we're on. I see the blog talk radio feed is running and I see that our Mixler feed is running. So we're going to take it from there. Anyway, if I hear anything back or I see anything, we will uh, try and get it fixed up. Anyway, so tonight's topics, we're going to talk about UFC on Fox 9. Uh, We're going to talk about some issues with GSP, which have been making the news quite a bit this week. Ben is going to be joining us. Uh, We're also going to be discussing some controversy involving Bigfoot Silva, which is uh, pretty huge news as well. Of course, we're going to talk about WWE TLC and um, 
we're going to take care of that. And lastly, of course, we're going to talk about Raw. We're going to talk about your entertainment news for this week and, of course, your gaming news. So let's get right into it and talk some MMA. If you want to join in the conversation, 347-324-3541 is the number. Again, 347-324-3541. All right, let's talk some MMA, shall we? All right, so this past weekend, of course, we had the newest uh, UFC event, UFC on Fox, not Fox Sports, but on Fox, and um, it was a surprisingly awesome event uh, from what I gathered. Uh, let's see, uh, Slick is telling me that there is no audio. I don't know what's going on, so let me see if I uh, if Ben is on the line and we can bring him in. Ben. Yeah, you hear me? Yeah, I hear you, dude. What's going on? Yo, Rich, you hear me? Because I can't hear you. Yeah, I hear you loud and clear. I I can hear you through the computer, but I can't hear you over my phone. Huh. Yeah, I can't hear you over my phone. I can hear you. It might be a bit of a delay because I can hear you off mixer, but I can't hear you on my phone. Huh, clearly there's uh, some blog talk radio issues. Um, you know what? I'm going to try and call you. So let me mute this, and I'm going to try and call you. All right, we're going to try and call Ben since clearly things are just not working according to plan. Let's try it out. Hello? Hey, how about now? Better? Hello? Nothing? Nope, clearly we are having issues with the uh, call in tonight, which uh, sucks. So there you have it. Let me just uh, put this in the chat. Uh... All right. So it seems we are experiencing issues with the call-in. So I see you guys. I see Slick in the switchboard, but I am not seeing um, any anybody being able to hear us on the blog talk radio side so for that i apologize but you know of course it's going to be the last show of the year and everything that can go wrong will go wrong so bear with us make sure to listen to the show on the mixler feed and participate in the chat on mtrlive.com anyway so we'll see if we can get the situation squared away with ben but let's talk about the ufc on fox 9 event the main event of course was uh, demetrius johnson taking on Benavides, Joseph Benavides in a uh, an amazing amazing fight. And before I get into that, I wanted to talk about a couple of other fights which really jumped out to me. Uh Roger Bowling Abel Trujillo was a fantastic fight that ended violently with Abel with Abel Trujillo taking the victory via TKO in a minute and 35 seconds in the second round. Also a surprisingly good fight um Cody McKenzie and Sam Stout even though Cody came in with a whole bunch of issues going on um he didn't have his shorts he had to buy shorts that had the price tag on him you name it anything that could have gone wrong in that fight did go wrong 
I feel I feel bad for Cody McKenzie because obviously you know it's just uh, a poor series of events that worked truly against him. Also, Scott Jorgensen, Zach Makovsky was another awesome fight. Um, awesome debut in the UFC for Zach Funsize Makovsky taking the victory via unanimous decision. Now, one fight that I was kind of torn about because I expected it to be extremely not one-sided, but a lot more action-packed was Edson Barboza taking on Danny Castillo. Uh, Barboza took the victory via majority decision, but it was weird because Castillo, he looked really good in that first round, and I figured that we were going to get ourselves a fight of the night uh, nominee, and it was surprisingly solid from start to finish, and I want to talk about the bonuses because as action-packed as it was, I was worried that it wouldn't get fight of the night, but We'll discuss that later on. Mac Danzig and Joe Lazan. Joe Lazan continues to um, impress everybody with his performances in the cage. He goes in there and puts a clinic on Mac Danzig for all three rounds, taking the fight via unanimous decision. Uh, nice win for Boston's own Joe Lazan. I was thoroughly impressed, especially because Mac Danzig, he's not a can, he's not a scrub. So to see that type of a performance from Mac Danzig, it's just insane. So. I'm very happy to see Lazan win. It's just I was bummed that that it was at the expense of Mac Danzig. Nick Lentz and Chad Mendes met in a featherweight bout, which was surprisingly exciting. I thought Mendes looked really good in there. Of course, Team Alpha Male putting in that work. Um, you know, it's weird because a lot of people were talking about the commentary and they were talking about uh, things that Joe Rogan was saying. I I really was focused on the card itself, and I thought that the fight was very, very solid. Not as solid as Uriah Faber, you know, guillotine uh, choking Michael McDonald because that was that was a, a masterful performance by Uriah Faber. I'm sure that that victory puts him in bantamweight title contention. I was very impressed with that. And, of course, on the uh, champion side of things, uh, Demetrius Johnson, Joe Benavides was as action-packed and exciting as you can get. Um... Suncast is telling me to dial in on the video side, so let's see if we can get some video up and running. All right. There we go. Thank you, Suncast, for the assist. For those of you that were hearing the GFQ feed, I apologize. It seems that we are now running with video. So, of course, I'll make sure to edit that out for the archived version of the show. So, yeah, we are having all kinds of wonderful tech issues this evening. Uh, you know, again, I apologize as I was saying, Demetrius Johnson and Joseph Benavides delivered uh, a crazy fight with a crazy ending. Um, one of the things a lot of people talk about when it comes to the flyweights is that there is no knockout power, which is is not true. So there you have it. You know. <sighs> okay, still no go on the call. And all right, I slick. I can't do anything with regards to the call. And just hit me on the chat because all the um. All the whatchamacallits keep coming out on air. So just hit me on the chat for that stuff, and we'll try and see if we can get the call and stuff squared away. Suncast, thank you for your assistance. It is much appreciated. All right, so th here's the thing that, and as I was talking about it before, people talk about the flyweights not having knockout power, and Demetrius Johnson definitely killed that very quickly with the big right hand that took out Joe Benavides. It was, um, 
it was it was ridiculous. It was a beautiful first round finish, and I was thoroughly thoroughly imp- impressed. Um, the thing that gets me is Demetrius Johnson is a uh, you know the the guy is is worthy of being called champion based on his performances. And anybody that uh, that talks about these guys not having knockout power, you have to understand that. These guys are 125-pounders. They're bouncing around Rock'em Sock'em Robot style. And they're delivering a lot of strikes at a very rapid pace. And sometimes those strikes may not have power behind them. Other times it's just the fact that we're going to end up being outstruck versus, um, you know, pretty much those instances where the guys are coming in and they're going to get one-shot knockout power. Again... Demetrius Johnson's a guy, him, John Dodson, who I know Ben is a big fan of, um, they try and, and, and they go in there and they do punches and bunches all the time. But to see a knockout from Demetrius Johnson on such a, a competitive guy like Joe Benavides was refreshing to me because, again, everybody talks about all oh, the flyweight division. There's always decisions or submissions, never knockouts. Well, clearly that has changed with Mighty Mouse securing the knockout at two minutes and eight seconds in the first round. Uh, ben, I don't know what we're going to try and do. Um, call into the switchboard again and let me know if you hear audio. If you do, I'll cue you up. If not, then uh, we'll try and figure something out. So fight. let's talk about these bonuses because, of course, fight of the night, even though, like I said, I was concerned that it wouldn't get it because there were so many great fights, fight of the night, $50,000 bonuses, went to Edson Barboza and Danny Castillo, well-deserved. Submission of the night went to Uriah Faber, so again, well-deserved. And of course, knockout of the night, $50,000 fight bonus goes to the one and only Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, and it was, without a doubt, a well-deserved honor. Um, Like I said, it was an incredible performance. It was something that I really, I I even um, wasn't expecting uh, ben is telling me that there is still still nothing on the dial-in. All right, I see Slick is trying to dial-in as well. And I, I guess, you know, Blog Talk Radio is screwing us over tonight with the no incoming audio. Again, I apologize for that, but it's something that unfortunately is out of my control. Anyway, if we get it up and running, we'll try and bring people in. If not, then you guys are just going to have to be stuck with me tonight. The big news, of course, is the press conference involving George St. Pierre that went on uh, earlier this week. And um, sad to say, GSP actually uh, vacated the welterweight title and is taking a leave of absence from the sport. Now, I got to talk about this in a couple of different ways that some there's three schools of thought. One is the school of thought that said that he was afraid of losing to Johnny Hendricks. It's one. Number two, the school of thought that says that GSP was scared and that's why he's left. He left. That's two. And of course, the old school of thought that GSP is a fucking pussy. Here's the thing, and this is the thing that bothers me the most. It takes a lot of brass balls to go in the cage and get beat down for 25 minutes by a guy who pretty much hits like a Mack truck. The guy didn't, you know, the guy didn't believe, 
Slick is saying, aren't those all three the same thing? Well, no, because you got to look at it like this. You got the, the people, you know, the people that are saying, Here, here's the thing. When, when that announcement was made, Facebook, like I can go on Twitter and see a lot of great commentary, but here's how Facebook broke it down. Oh, he fucking left because he was scared of Johnny Hendricks. Not saying that GSP was a pussy or anything, but just that he was scared of, of, of having a rematch with Johnny Hendricks. That, that, that's, that's, one, that's one little bracket. The other is the fact that he, his heart wasn't in it or he had personal problems, whatever the case may be. And the third one, which is the one that, that I'm saying, is that he was just a pussy overall. And, he, and rather than, than fight and lose, he figured he, they figured he would walk away. They all seem similar, but the three schools, like, of course, the Johnny Hendricks fans, the hardcore guys, automatically said that GSP was ducking him, and that's why he didn't want to fight. The guys that were saying that he was a pussy were just saying that the competitions got better, and he didn't want to fight anymore. And, of course, like I said, the third are the, are the rational thinkers that feel that he's got some stuff going on, and that's why he stepped away. Here's how I see it. Like I said, you you just came out of a fight where a guy was beating you to death, pretty much. Where, in GSP's case, the guy didn't even remember. He didn't even remember the last round of that fight. What I don't care who you are. If you can't remember what you did five minutes ago, clearly, it's it's affecting your 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 brain. It's affecting your your brain is, is sustaining damage. And for people to sit there, these armchair guys, and I like I like what Slick said. I want to see any of these armchair bitches step in the ring with him for even one round. It's very easy to sit here and make all these assumptions, but you have to look at it like this. GSP's been champion for a long time. He's been champion for a long time. Like he lost the belt to Matt Sarah. He won it back, and ever since getting the belt back from Matt Sarah, he just kept fighting. And sure, you can say, oh, GSP wasn't finishing fights, or he was fighting safe. It doesn't matter. He was defending that belt every time for years and years and years. He came back from that injury, got back in there, boom, defended the belt. And sure, it's, it, the fights aren't the most exciting fights, but you got to take it into consideration. The guy's trying to keep his, he's fighting safe to keep his body safe. And that's what people fail to comprehend. People can say, oh, he's not going in there and he's not slinging leather and trading with these dudes. Okay, yeah, that that's fine. Go in there and, and exchange punches with a guy who pretty much has secured the bulk of his victories via knockout. That's fine. I'm just going to give the guy my belt. And that's what I'm saying. Like, people that were pissed off that he didn't go in there and slug it out with Johnny Hendricks, why would you do that? Why would you go and jump into the wheelhouse of a, with a discipline that that guy is better than, than you at? Like, think about it. GSP has good boxing. He has good boxing. And his boxing, you know, is good for dispensing damage. But you look at Johnny Hendricks, the guy just has knockout power. He has one punch knockout capability like this in the blink of an eye it's lights out and it kills me that people are like yo man he should have gone in there he should have traded blah 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 you know and and i like what ben says the reason mayweather is the most financially successful boxer is because he doesn't get hit that is called fighting smart you see what i'm saying and i like i like that that ben cited mayweather for that 
you know. And it's think about this. Mayweather can probably remember what he had for dinner three months ago. Or he can remember, you know, what happened five years ago on, you know, May 22nd. Like, that's the kind of shit I'm talking about. It's very easy to come out with the logic that all oh, these guys, they're, they're fighting boring, they're fighting, you know, they're, they're not fighting in an exciting fashion. It's a terrible, terrible mantra to use, and it kills me that these guys go in there and, and they, they make these assumptions without getting into the cage. Even when I was younger, when I would, you know, it, there you go, thank you, Slick Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali can't even remember what happened three seconds ago. You know, and, and that that hurts me as a fan of Muhammad Ali, even Mike Tyson to a degree. A lot of these guys, they people don't understand that as much as we want these guys to go out there and entertain us, they're still human and the human body can only take but so much punishment. And that's what kills me that those people will sit there and they'll say, yeah, you know, this guy should have fought like this. This guy should have fought like that. It's very different when the cage door closes. I, I want to talk about, and, and this kind of goes into wrestling a little bit, and Slick Slick went with me to an event, to one of the House of Glory wrestling events with, uh, with John Blade. We went there, and it's very easy to, to not appreciate the art of wrestling until you go there and you see it firsthand. I've been there with the House of Glory guys when they break down the ring. I've been there with those guys when they, when they are, are practicing taking bumps. I've seen it for I've seen it firsthand. Hell, I've taken some bumps just so I can understand the science behind it. And that's that's one of the things that that kills me. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, you know, this guy does this, this guy does that. And don't get me wrong, you know, when it comes to wrestling, I, I beat up a lot of the characters and I beat up a lot of the writing, but I never shit on the work that goes into being a wrestler. Because of that that same exact mantra that applies to mixed martial arts. You're going in there, you're taking a beating, your body's taking a beating. You mean to tell me that that every guy that gets in the cage is fighting at 100%, that he doesn't have injuries or bruises or things like that? And and people don't understand that. You don't, you don't go into this stuff at 100%. It's like when GSP had the knee surgery, and Ben remembers this. We were talking about GSP not being the same after that knee surgery, the guy came in there and he fought safe. Everybody was giving him shit. The guy came back extremely quick, healed up very fast and jumped in the cage to defend his belt. He didn't say, oh, you know, I'm going to skip this fight. I'm not going to do it. You know, he, he jumped in there and he defended his belt and people were complaining that he wasn't shooting in for the, for the takedown or he wasn't trying to use more of the wrestling, even though his knee was held together with, with Elmer's glue and he was still not 100%. Because I guarantee you, even though he said that, he probably wasn't 100%. These are the facts. But here's, here's what gets me. You know, the guy went in there and, and here's a statistic that, that, that's going to validate what I'm saying. GSP, much like Frank Shamrock, who had vacated the middleweight belt in 1999 to take an extended break, you know, he, he joins that club. Of course, Boss Rutten uh, vacated the heavyweight title in 1999, but here's what I want to share with you guys, and listen to this. GSP leaves with the most wins in UFC history, which is 19. He spent the most time fighting in the octagon at 5 hours, 28 minutes, and 12 seconds.
He has a streak of nine consecutive title defenses, which is second most in the UFC and major MMA history. So with that said, with that said, why can't this guy step away from the sport? Again, 19 wins, 19, spent five hours, 28 minutes, and 12 seconds in the octagon. Just think about that. Five hours, 28 minutes, 12 seconds in 19 fights. And in that time, he's, he's fought, his last three fights have just been wars with guys who are just hitters, to, to quote Nick Diaz, they're hitters, they're dangerous guys. And for you to sit here and say to yourself, oh, you know, this guy, he's walking away from the sport because he's scared or, you know, it's it's crazy. And I, I like what you said. Ben Ben says it. See, at least if Ben can't be on air, he can contribute in the chat. He says that GSP has that fuck you money. He doesn't owe anybody shit. Thank you. Now, here's the here's the crazy thing. Following Brock Lesnar's defeat of to, to Cain Velasquez in 2010, GSP was the biggest draw in the sport. Prior to the fight with Johnny Hendricks, his previous seven bouts had attracted an estimated 700,000 sales on pay-per-view. He was featured as a co-main in UFC 100, which was the UFC's largest pay-per-view at 1.6 million buys. His fight with Nick Diaz was his best drawing as a main event fighter, which drew 950,000 buys. In 2011, he headlined UFC's debut show in Toronto, which set UFC's all-time attendance and gate record with 55,000 fans paying out $12 million. So for you to sit there and, and make these assumptions, the guy stepping away at the top of his sport, and sure, his last four fights weren't super dominant. They weren't as exciting as you would have liked, but you gotta take into consideration this statistic. Over four fights, he absorbed 412 significant strikes, which were measured by fight metric. You guys can look that up. Compared to 463 significant strikes absorbed in his first 23 fights of his career. So think about that. In 23 fights, he absorbed 463 strikes. In his last four fights, he absorbed 412. 412. So in the last four fights, he almost tied the record of significant strikes that he had over his entire career. Why can the guy not take a break? Think about think about that number. Think about it. And I'm and I'm going to share that in the chat with you guys because it's you know, hold on a second. Cuz I want I want you guys to read this. I want you guys to read this. And and I what kills me is exactly that. That Dana White is pissed off. Listen, Dana White is pissed off because he's losing a guy that that gets him money. And and that's bad in his case as a promoter. And again, I've said this on air a, a thousand times. I like Dana White. I like the way that he has a a brutally honest approach to doing business, but sometimes that honesty Excuse me. That honesty is 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 way too over the top for his own good. Before GSP did this press conference, Dana White was saying, "Oh, yeah, you know, GSP's not going to retire. He's not going to do anything. He's 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 going to announce his rematch, blah blah blah." And GSP came out and he's like, "I am going to step away from the sport. Uh I am going to do what is best for me and uh, I am vacating the welterweight title." And and you know, it's like 
Who's gonna who who can blame him? Who can blame him? You know, it's it, it's like that. You know, it's like st stop whining and let the fighters do what's best for them. I agree, Ben, ten thousand percent. Let them do what is right for them physically and emotionally. I'd rather I'd rather have memories of nineteen awesome fights than the memory of GSP had twenty awesome fights and five fights that left him a vegetable. You know. Think about it. What's the sense in having 25 fights if the guy can't wipe his own ass? You know? It, it's as it's as easy as that. If, if the guy if the guy's going to end up a vegetable, why should he not you know, control his destiny and stop that? And and, and it's true. Mortis, whoever whoever said any UFC champion is afraid of fighting anyone is ludicrous. And it's true. But Mortis, if you go, you know, if you go and you look on Facebook, like if you look on like the UFC Facebook page and scroll down to the GSP announcement when they posted it, you're going to you're going to be crazy with the way with the way that, that that people reacted and the stuff that people wrote. And I and I had contemplated putting a screenshot because I wanted you to see that these are the guys that are the quote unquote diehard fans, the guys that are that live and breathe for this shit. I've been watching the UFC since the old days, since the guys were fighting with sneakers and and people were, you know, wearing you were wearing geese and sneakers and knee pads and the tank abbott days, those days. I've been watching it since back then. Same thing with Pride Fighting, the old days when shit was crazy. And the fact is that if you can't get into the cage and speak about the the trials and tribulations that fighters experience, you have no right to make those assumptions. As a fan, yes, I was upset. I was bummed. I'm like, damn, you know, it's sad to see him walk away. But I understood. The guy the guy probably has a bunch of shit going on, and fighting isn't just a physical game, it's a psychological game as well. Very psychological. You know, you have to get into a certain mindset to shut a cage door and beat someone half to death. I don't care who you are. And that's what gets me. That people don't realize that you have to you have to turn on a different a different part of your personality, a different part of your psyche to go in there and do what these guys do. You know, that's a great example. Ben says Gary Goodrich has dementia due to fighting so long. Do we really want all our fighters to have brain damage? There you go. But I just I figured I'd share those statistics with you. And, um, you know, Dana White, he did an interview with MMA Junkie and he was saying that um, I'll leave him alone and let him do his thing. When a guy gets done fighting, I don't bother the guys until it's time to fight again. Let them go. Let them disappear and do their thing. Then we contact them when it's time to fight again. Now, here's the thing. Even though Dana White said all that, as soon as GSP announced his retirement, he went in there and said that Hendricks is going to face Robbie Lawler for the vacant title. So here's the thing that gets me. GSP is not even out of the picture for five minutes and the other fight is already announced, which leads me to believe it's like the UFC knew it was coming. But, you know, it's easier for Dana White to go out there and act all piss and vinegar versus just saying, you know, we respect what GSP is going to do. We wish him the best of luck and the UFC is here. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're here for you guys. Simple as that. And, and it's true. I, don't get me wrong, Johnny Hendricks and Robbie Lawler, thank you, thank you, Ben. The fight is going to be a bloodbath. That fight, 
there's no way in hell that that fight isn't going to end in some brutally violent fashion because these are guys to to use the Nick Diaz term these guys are hitters they go out there and it's it's I'm going to beat you until you stop moving especially in Robbie Lawler's case Robbie Lawler's had such a huge resurgence the last couple of years that it's just it's just amazing you know it's just amazing the 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 turnaround that he's done Jay, Jay says, GSP screwed GSP. Dana channeling his inner Vince. Yeah, I could see that. I could, the, the, the similarities between Dana White and, and Vince McMahon are, are amazing. I see that uh, Josh has joined us. What's up, Josh? But again, for, for these guys to, to, to complain about GSP leaving and, and to have a title match set up like this is, is insane. Think about it. Everybody's complaining, oh, GSP's gone, but we're getting Hendricks and Lawler for the belt. Simple as that. So Dana White was asked about Nick Diaz, and, you know, we all we love Nick Diaz here on the show. Um, Nick Diaz, for as far as I'm concerned, he is retired. He is enjoying big-ass bags of weed, and he's enjoying the life that he's living and the money he's got. And that's it. And when he's ready to come back and punch somebody in the face, he will. And it's funny because, you know, Dana White said that. Um... <laughs> there you go. <sighs> ah, yes, I forgot, Mortis, that you're not a fan. But, you know, in my house, we all we all like the Diaz brothers because they're just they're just fun to watch. They, I, I can't help it. Uh, here's here's what Dana White said. Dana White offered Nick Diaz a fight with Carlos Condit. And as many of you know, you know, Carlos Condit's fight had to be scrapped and they were trying to figure out who he was going to fight. And I'm bummed that Ben can't come on because the fight that that Carlos Condit is going to get for a contendership is ridiculous. Anyway, so when he offered the fight, the Condit fight to Nick Diaz, Nick Diaz, you know, he said about Nick Diaz, he doesn't want to fight. I thought he wanted the rematch, but um, he's not interested. He said maybe he'd be interested in coming back in May. He said, I'll fight the winner of Hendricks versus Lawler. And I told him, you're ranked number 10. It doesn't work that way. So according to the UFC rankings, Nick Diaz is ranked number 10. And Carlos Condit, for all intents and purposes, is going to be ranked, you know, number one. Let's just say. So basically, Dana White was like, oh, you know, he didn't want to. He wants to fight the winner of Hendricks and Lawler. But the guy is ranked number 10. And this is where rankings kind of bother me. And I'm curious to see, and I want to see what Mortis and Ben and, the, and those guys say. Do you feel that according to the UFC rankings, that Nick Diaz should be ranked number 10? Because I disagree 100% ranking Diaz number 10. That's insane. Top five, easy. Especially because, you know, let's take, let's take GSP out of the rankings. You got Hendricks. Lawler, Condit, T. Wood, maybe Nick Diaz, you know, but, but it's weird, you know, it's, it's weird that he's, um, well, yeah. uh, Okay. See now, now I'm curious. I'm glad that you guys are responding. Ben says Diaz should have to fight one of the top 10 before he gets a title shot. Valid point. In Val's case, you know, if you're out of the game, your ranking goes down from inactivity. Mortis agrees with Val. Ben went on to say, honestly, he technically shouldn't even be ranked. See, these are all very interesting arguments, but I'm curious. Is Nick Diaz 
no longer a top 10 fighter. That's what I'm curious about because, see, I, I, it's weird because that division is so stacked, but Nick Diaz is Nick Diaz. I mean, ranking him 10, sure, you want to rank him 10 from inactivity, okay. Ben says he lost his last two fights. All right. So with that said, and we all, we all have different schools of thought, in your eyes, and I, and I'm, I want to see what you guys say, where would you rank Nick Diaz? Because I would rank him maybe maybe fifth or sixth in that division at best. But again, with an asterisk due to inactivity. So with that said, feel free to share your, your pick on where you'd like to see him ranked. Because like I said, I'd like to see him, you know, sixth or seventh maybe. Ben went on to say probably out right outside the top five. See, that's that's what I mean. Six or seven-ish. That's not bad, but I, I don't feel he should be ranked number 10. You know, Mortis is of the school of thought that said he flat out said that he's retired. I wouldn't rank him at all. See what I mean? It's, it's crazy, and this is where rankings always create these interesting arguments. So the funny thing is that Carlos Condit, originally Tyron Woodley kept texting that he wanted to fight. He wanted to fight with Carlos Condit, wanted to fight. Dana White was like, no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Guess what we're going to get? Tyron Woodley versus Carlos Condit. And the winner will face the winner of Hendricks and Lawler. So very two very interesting fights for different reasons. Obviously, Hendricks and Lawler is going to have a ridiculous amount of violence. That we know. With Condit and T-Wood, we're going to get a mix of styles that can still end violently. T-Wood can still go in there and put and put a clinic on, on Carlos Condit wrestling-wise. But Carlos Condit's striking is very, very, very crisp. So I'm, I'm intrigued about that fight, like I said, because there's so much that can go, that can go either way that it's, it, that fight is definitely a toss-up. Now, with Hendricks and Lawler... While Johnny Hendricks, he definitely deserves, you know, Johnny Hendricks deserves a title, his title. He deserves it. You know, he had a great performance against GSP. And, may, you know, he's, some people are saying he's the uncrowned champion. Okay. But Robbie Lawler, I, I, you know, I've been following Robbie Lawler since Strikeforce days. Since he, since he was in Strikeforce putting dudes to sleep. And I always felt that Lawler was a guy that was always right there. He was always right there. The only problem with Robbie Lawler that people say is is a, is is an issue is that he is not consistent. It's all about which Robbie Lawler shows up. I mean, uh, Joe Rogan's talked about this at length and he said, you know, it's all Robbie Lawler's a dangerous guy, but it's all about which Robbie Lawler shows up for the fight. And you know, it, it's one of those things that definitely raises a red flag, but I just feel that Robbie Lawler he, he's he's come so far. I'd like to see him with the belt at some point and I think he's going to you're going to see a very dangerous and very brutal Robbie Lawler in this fight, excuse me, with Johnny Hendricks. So switching gears a little bit, we got to talk about some uh, Bellator and Doug Marshall, who um, he actually uh, fought Alexander Schlenko in Bellator 109, and he came, his drug test came back positive. So he's suspended until February 7th. He has to pay a fine, retake the test, and... Uh, Definitely not good. He tested. They didn't say what banned substance he um he tested for, but he definitely did. He did piss hot. So, you know, 
Definitely very, very interesting. So last week, we got to switch gears again, talk about Invicta a little bit. Last year, we, last week, we talked about Julie Kedzie retiring from the sport of mixed martial arts. But even though she's retired, she has a brand new home in Invicta. She It was announced that she will be the matchmaker for Invicta going forward in addition to her uh, color commentary duties. So definitely very happy to see Julie Kedzie land on her feet. And the matchmaker for Invicta position is going to be very, very interesting. No Mortis. I didn't talk about Antonio Silva yet because that is a that is a that is a subject that I that's going to take at least ten minutes. So, um, yeah, Julie Kedzie heads to Invicta as their matchmaker. Definitely very happy to see her land on her feet. And of course, her color commentary is always awesome to hear on Invicta. So she's going to be pulling double duty over there. Definitely a great pickup for the organization. Now. Bigfoot Silva, thank you, Mortis, uh, for for setting that up. So Bigfoot Silva, if you guys remember, when he fought Alistair Overeem, Bigfoot Silva talked a lot of shit about Overeem, saying that Overeem was created in a lab, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he beat Overeem and he said, you see, this is why, because I'm a natural athlete, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So turns out that even though he had approval for testosterone replacement therapy, Antonio Silva failed his post-fight drug test after his fight with Mark Hunt at UFC Fight Night 33. I'm very bummed about this because think about it. This is a a fight that was that's going in the in the record books as just an amazing heavyweight fight, and now it's it has a blemish due to you know that being the case. Anyway, Silva was medically approved for TRT, and he had been in compliance. With the with the pre-fight guidelines performed prior to the event, on the on the day of the event, he had a level of testosterone outside of the allowable limit. Of course, it's a violation of the UFC fighter conduct policy and his promotional agreement with Zufa. Now, what happened because of this is that he is going to eat a nine-month suspension, and he was stripped of the fifty thousand dollar fight of the night bonus, which has now gone to Mark Hunt. Now the fight is no longer a draw, but will be a no contest on Silva's record, and Hunt will keep the draw. Now here's the funny thing. Bigfoot Silva put out a statement that said that he plans on suing his doctor because the doctor was supposed to uh, be administering the regimen of injections, etc., etc., etc. So here, here's, here's what bothers me about this whole chain of events. The, the, the constant thing with the whole, with TRT and, and Ben and I have gone about this at length in various episodes about TRT. And here's what bothers me. I don't care that he was on TRT because look at him. You know, he's a he he's pretty much an extra from from Easter Island. What bothers me is that he went on record saying that Overeem was created in a lab. And, you know, that he that he he spoke poorly of Overeem because of Overeem's supplementation, whatever that may be. And then you go and you get test you you test positive for that shit. Now, Mortis says I think he knew what was going in. Probably just didn't know how much. He doesn't seem really that bright to me. And it's true. That's the that's the thing that gets me. It's like, he, uh, according to what he said on his Facebook page. If I if I could have, I would have pasted it in the in the chat. He said that the doctor told him that he can administer himself an, another injection on the day of the fight. He had injections prior to that, 
and allegedly the doctor gave him an gave him an injection to be administered on the day of the fight. Now the funny thing that gets me is that you got these guys and not, I'm not I'm not speaking poorly of Brazilian medicine. I don't know if that's the case, but I'm sorry. Every time these issues happen with these fighters that don't that aren't in the states, they always make sure to cite that their you know their doctor that does liposuction injections in a bodega, um, that does liposuction and Botox injections are at fault for what's going into their bodies. You know, and it's it. I just find it highly strange that. This always happens when these guys go to doctors outside the U.S. Because when Overeem had his problems, he said, oh, you know, my doctor this and this and this. And the doctor testified in the weirdest testimony ever. And Ben remembers this because we talked about it at length. And then you have, you know, a lot of these other guys, Bigfoot Silva included. Oh, you know, the doctor said this and he should have known what was going on. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm tired of it. Like the, t- the whole TRT thing is tiresome because when you look at TRT, it's because your testosterone levels are low medically or you, you juiced and your testosterone levels can't get back to their acceptable levels or you're in your late forties and fifties and you need an assist in, in in the old uh, chubby department. Here, here's the thing that gets me with that. As far as I, as far as I'm concerned, TRT, if you're, You know, if you're one of those guys that juiced up and now you're clean and your testosterone levels are low and you need to take TRT, okay. But at least be forthcoming that you need TRT because you used to juice. I doubt that's going to affect you if your blood tests and your urine come back clean. At least say, hey, you know, I got to take TRT because I was young and stupid and I juiced up. Listen, when I was in high school and I was on the weightlifting team, guys juiced. At least three guys that were on the team with me put injections in themselves nine times out of ten not knowing what they're doing. I knew a guy, and I can't, I, I'm not going to say his name. This guy, he, I believe at the time he was using Synthol, which is an oil that you inject in your muscles to make it bigger. Because this guy, his, his chest, his shoulders were so big And he had no abs, so he would always walk hunched over because his muscles were were so huge. They were so big. And and mind you, you know, he's a senior and he's a senior in high school. I I was actually a junior in high school and I was an alternate for one of the guys. And I remember I walked into the locker room after after weightlifting class and the guy was in there, you know, putting an injection in and whatever. I, I don't pass judgment. It is what it is. When. I got into senior year of high school. I wasn't an alternate anymore. Um, I actually was a starter on the weightlifting team, and and you know they were guys back then that that took different things. I you know I was I went through the creatine phase, um, that the andro phase. I went through the andro phase briefly because they gave me a jar when I was in high school, and I tried it out like an idiot. Um, didn't work. It didn't work at the time. I don't even remember why or what it didn't do, but I will tell you, um, that stuff that, you know, that stuff, there's, there's so many different side effects because you're putting, you're putting such, such crazy things into your body. I remember there was a story about a bunch of bodybuilders and this isn't, this isn't based on the movie with the rock, but in general, 
they were stealing uh, AIDS medication that allowed the body to replace de uh, deteriorated muscle because when people suffer from AIDS, they uh, their muscle weight, their muscle tissue wastes away. So this particular this uh, particular drug would uh, restore the the muscle that would waste away on AIDS patients, and bodybuilders would break into into uh, medical facilities and steal that and use that. That's how crazy it is. You know, it, it, it's crazy the, the kind of stuff that goes out there. And supplementation, you know, supplementation, again, in controlled settings works. I remember when I got into, when I got into college, my first year of college before, before I, I withdrew, when you went to compete in any collegiate sport, they would give you a list of supplements that were not approved because they would affect either your blood or your urine and were considered performance enhancing by the NCAA. And I understand that because there are certain things, you know, certain pre-workout supplements, there are certain supplements that you take that they, they can trigger false positives. They may not be considered controlled substances, but they do trigger false positives. So rather than dealing with that shit, people just withdraw you know, from using those particular supplements, there's plenty of protein shakes and well, not protein shakes, but, um, you know, blends of post-workout and pre-workout supplements that definitely can make you a little, a little jittery. Hell, I remember I was taking, there used to be a fat burner for those of you that are gym rats, you may know it. It used to be called Clembutrex. It used to come in a red, white, and blue bottle and would come with a, with a syringe, like the type that you give to dispense medicine to children. So Clenbutrex would, um, it was funny cause I had just started working at my job. I was using Clenbutrex to, to cut uh, a lot of weight. And, um, I remember I went to take the, um, the random drug test for my job and the lady was like, Oh, you know, your, you know, your, your, your urine shows signs of dehydration. Have you drank water today? And I was like, yeah, you know, I've drank about a, uh, uh, a gallon, you know, I was drinking about a gallon of water a day. And she said, she was like, well, not for nothing. She goes, you know, do you go to the gym? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I take uh she's like, are you taking any supplements? So I told her, you know, I take a multivitamin. I was taking Clembutrex to cut, to cut some weight and, um, et cetera. And she goes, all right, is, is the Clembutrex a, a fat burner? And I explained to her, I'm like, yeah, she said, listen, you know, it, this won't affect your, your, your urine test here at the, uh, for your, for your place of employment, but you have to understand that your show, your urine is showing up dehydrated, which can be dangerous if you know, you don't, you're not drinking substantial amounts of water and I, you know, young and, and, you know, just trying shit out. And she explained that, you know, the, the urine, the, the, the way the urine came out showed dehydration and that I need to up my, my water intake to at least two gallons. Of course, shortly after I, uh, you know, I took that, that, that urine test at the job, uh, bodybuilding.com put out an article that they were removing Clembutrex from the shelves due to the fact that a couple of guys had taken it and died of heart attacks. A couple of football players had taken it and they've died. Now, this goes back to what I'm saying with, 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 with fighters. You know, these guys, they have to have a list of substances that they can take that you know, may trigger false positives and they need to let the UFC know while Bigfoot Silva's logic that he was 
unaware that that amount of testosterone would put him over the top has some validity, and I say some. The fact of the matter is that when you're competing in any type of a sport, you need to have a complete and utter understanding of what is going in your body. That's it. And for him to cite that excuse, now if he sues the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, you know, I fucked up, maybe that'll, that'll, that'll decrease his, his suspension. But like a couple of the guys said in the chat earlier, you should be aware of what's going into your body. And just in case, you should have a second doctor just to, to oversee the first doctor. That's it. That's how it should be. Here's my primary doctor, but I have a secondary doctor. Hell, I have that now. I got my regular doctor I go to, and then I got another doctor that I go to for any things that that don't that don't add up. When I when I tore when I tore my labrum in my rotator cuff, I went to a guy that said that they needed to cut open my shoulder and that they had to, you know, surgically repair my rotator cuff. I said, "All right." The guy was like, "Yeah, it's a pretty big procedure. You're going to be laid up for about a week or two." I went to a sports medicine doctor. The guy looked at it. He said, listen, you need six weeks of rehab. You have what are called micro tears and you'll be good as new. That's what I'm saying. I did the rehab. Didn't long, it took longer than six weeks, but I was good as new. Everything works. Didn't need to have my shoulder cut open. And that's what I'm saying, especially when you're a professional athlete. You mean to tell me that, you won't, that, that a doctor is going to tell you here, inject yourself with testosterone the day of the fight or the day before the fight. And you're not going to question that? That makes absolutely no fucking sense. But now, for his trouble, he's eating a nine-month suspension, and he has to give his $50,000 to Mark Hunt. And it's true. It's funny that that 8572 says you'd be surprised, and it's true. Like like a lot of these guys, they they don't take some of this stuff into consideration. I'm sorry, but if, if you're, if you're, livelihood is based on your body, whether it's how you look or how you fight or, you know, how you perform. You, there, there has to be some, some oversight. I loved, you know, I loved when Barry Bonds and these guys were like, yeah, I don't know. They gave me the stuff. They told me to put it on and it worked. Oh, so, you know, this guy's going to give you fucking camel jizz and he's going to tell you to rub it on your, on your muscles because it's going to make you grow. And you're going to do that just because one guy told you to do it. It's insane. The, the the fact that that's cited as logic really boggles my mind and um and you know that's that's how it goes these guys they they just oh yeah you know they t- he told me that it was fine that I can use it oh okay you know it's it's um it's such a such a crazy crazy argument anyway last bit of MMA news to tie things up the um Sergio Pettis will be taking on Alex Caceres at UFC on Fox 10. That's going down January 25th in Chicago. Of course, Sergio Pettis had a successful octagon debut at UFC 167, defeating Will Camposano by decision. Caceres has gone undefeated in his last four outings, with one win being overturned to a no contest due to a drug test failure due to marijuana. So there you have it. I think the fight between Bruce Leroy and Sergio Pettis is going to be very, very enjoyable to watch, and I'm definitely looking forward to to that fight as well. Anyway, that's going to wrap up the last MMA segment of 2013. Let's get into some wrestling because there is quite a bit to discuss. So let's jump right into it. Oh, no volume. That's good. Hold on a second. 
clearly the soundboard isn't working. Because why would it? I'm trying to use my Nexus tablet as the soundboard this evening, so. We want the gold, sucker! Hulk Hogan, we're coming for you, nigga! The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. All right, so it would be it would be fair to say that TLC was surprisingly better than I had hoped. It would be a fair assessment and an assessment that honestly I can I can genuinely say worked. Um here's the thing. Looking at TLC it was very easy to say Oh, this pay-per-view, they're really trying too hard to get people to tune in, blah, 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 it's going to suck. It was surprisingly good. It was surprisingly good. There were there was some, there was some really, really great angle advancement, and um, above all else, I just felt that all the guys that performed in their matches were dialed in. There were certain things that could have been better, and the first thing that I got to say could have been better was the kickoff match with Dolph Ziggler and Fandango number one because Ziggler lost. It was it was a it was a match that was roughly about four minutes long, and I was really really bummed to see Ziggler lose because it's like you had a guy that was up here, title winner, the crowd was really into him, red hot. Allegedly, they say that because uh, they say that Ziggler they don't feel he's a draw. They don't feel he's a main event caliber guy. Listen, if you can bounce back from being a male a male cheerleader and a caddy for Chavo Guerrero, you should be untouchable at this point. And that's what gets me. Like this guy, he came up from, like I said, Spirit Squad. Then he was Curran White's caddy, all the way to Dolph Ziggler. To hi, I'm Dolph Ziggler. You remember when that when his gimmick started that he'd walk around introducing himself? That was the initial gimmick, and that's what he worked on. And he built his his entire reputation on that. And that's what kills me. It's like it's like, yo, the dude, the dude was definitely, you know, he was he was on point. And it's just I just feel that for them to say that he's not a draw, even though he's he's pretty much climbed the ladder, is is crazy. It, it's it's insane that they that they take this guy, and and you know it's it's you know. He he just they just dropped the ball with him. He he was good, like when Vicky Guerrero was his mouthpiece, it allowed Dolph Ziggler to improve. And it allowed Ziggler to become a better performer. But eventually, he he didn't need Vicky anymore, and he was great on the mic, and and that's what it was. He was he was really really good. But for you to say that Dolph Ziggler doesn't draw, it's insane because you didn't even give the guy ample time to be champion. And that's what gets me. For you to say that a, that a wrestler doesn't draw, you need to do it. There has to be a trial by fire. There has to be a, an explanation as to why he doesn't draw. Like Dolph Ziggler, he can wrestle. He takes bumps like a master. Good storytelling. And his mic work is pretty solid. His mic work is pretty solid. It's not the greatest, don't get me wrong. He's not setting the world on fire, but he's better than a lot of other guys that were in his position that have become champion. Let's be honest. 
The Great Kali was a fucking champion. The Great Kali. The great fucking snooze fest that he was when he was champion. Think about that. You're saying Dolph Ziggler can't draw, but you put the belt on the great Kali. I'm, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Ziggler can't draw according to the sheets, but the great Kali was world heavyweight champion. Some shit just, I, I just, I just don't fucking understand it. You know, it's, it, it's insane. Anyway, shortly after that match, of course, the, the pay-per-view opened up with the three on one handicap match with the shield. Now, a couple of things, and I've talked about this, these four gentlemen, CM Punk, we've already established it, but these four guys together can have matches every day of the week. And it will be a four-star match every damn time. Because think about it. When you saw this match was announced, you said to yourself, holy shit, this match is going to be a clusterfuck because you have CM Punk trying to work with all three of these guys. But the storytelling was so cohesive. It was so tight that I said to myself, did CM Punk book this match himself with these guys backstage to get it to work? Or... Was that was there, you know, did an agent put this match together? Because honestly, every aspect of the match was 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 fluid. Even the ending with the I knew the ending was coming because I said to myself, they're preparing Roman Reigns for the inevitable split. So if you're going to do that, you know, for sure that, you know, that, 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 you know, that's how that's how it works. You know, that Roman Reigns was going to be the factor in this match, because everybody knows that the the focused the spotlight is on Roman Reigns, but I will say this: Ambrose and Rollins had the opportunity to be showcased effectively in this match. CM Punk worked it out exactly the way it needed to be worked out. Everybody looked good in this match. Even the Shield on the losing end looked good. And that's what I like. I like the fact that, and, and this is what I've said before, when we talk about wins and losses, wins and losses hurt a lot of performers. The Shield have now eclipsed the necessity for wins and losses because the gimmick works. The gimmick is what it's all about. These guys, they come in there and they give you four-star matches every night. It, it, it's, as, it's as easy as that. And it's funny, I'm looking at the, at the chat as, as I'm discussing this, and I see a lot of people talking about Kofi Kingston and how people love him, people hate him, and it's interesting, and I want to discuss that when I get into some the rest of the recap, but, you know, I, I see so many different passionate discussions in there, so keep it up, guys. I definitely am watching it from the corner of my eye. But the, the three-on-one handicap match was a fantastic start to the pay-per-view, and it was, it was just fantastic. Meanwhile, on the diva side of things, uh, AJ with Tamina took on Natalia, and I'll be honest, I really thought AJ was going to lose the belt to Natalia because, number one, I kind of feel that AJ is, is spinning her wheels right now with, with the, feud, the, the feud with the Total Divas. Number two, I felt that the Total Divas needed some sort of validation, so I thought they were going to put the belt on Natalia now. Given some an incident that occurred at tribute to the uh, at tribute to the troops with AJ, I think that AJ's title reign will definitely be coming to an end sooner rather than later. As for the match itself, it was typical shenanigans. Um, 
of course, Tamina getting involved, the, the, the sharpshooter spot, which was really nice. I have to tell you that AJ makes the sharpshooter look incredibly painful because she's very flexible. Because if you notice, when Natalia puts her in the sharpshooter, she bends AJ back to the point where it's just... You'd think that she's going to snap her in half, but AJ's flexibility really adds a little a little extra oomph to that move. It adds a little bit of pump, some polish to it. And that's one thing that I've said is the case with certain divas. I remember when Melina was put in certain... Thank you. When Melina was put in certain spots, her flexibility just made those moves a lot more... It made them better when, when you had to sell them. And that's one thing AJ's flexibility makes... You know, it works in an instance like this because the sharpshooter, there's very, very few people that execute that move as precise as people that learned it from the heart dungeon. Let's not talk about, you know, the rock sharpshooter, which needs work. But honestly, you know, you look at the Scorpion Deathlock, you look at... um. You look at Bret Hart sharpshooter. You look at even uh like le- at the variations. Like you look at Dean Malenko's Texas Cloverleaf. Uh, uh, those moves when when they're executed on certain wrestlers, how the wrestlers' flexibility factors in is is pivotal in making the moves look good. Now, when you look at at the Rock when he performed the sharpshooter, the Rock he his, his quads and and he was just such a big dude. It just didn't look. It didn't look right, and I just felt that he never mastered the execution of that move, and that's a that's a separate story all its own. But uh, with Natalia, I think that putting the belt on her, if you put the belt on her at this pay-per-view or at the next pay-per-view, it wouldn't be a bad idea just because Natalia has all the tools. She has the mic work. She has the mainstream exposure. Um, and last but not least, she has the pedigree to, to, to add some validity to the belt. Now, in AJ's case... This this um, you know this particular title reign, you know it's it's weird because like I said, AJ's title reign has pretty much consisted of her skipping around the ring and feuding with the Total Divas cast, which wouldn't be bad. You know, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be as bad if the rest of the roster was on par wrestling wise. And, you know, uh, GFQ Viewer 8572 says that she is boring. If it wasn't for Total Divas, she would be shit. Now, it, listen, Natalia definitely not aces on the mic. But from a wrestling standpoint, she's probably one of the few complete wrestlers still on that roster. Her, AJ, they, Caitlyn, eh, you know, but that's what I mean, like, like Alicia Fox. Let's take Alicia Fox, for example. A lot of people say, oh, Alicia Fox, she's such a great wrestler. She was great on NXT. Haven't seen it. All the matches she's had have been fucking meh. They've been meh. You know, then you look at, like, most of the divas that, have been, that haven't been called up are better wrestlers than the divas on the roster. Sasha Banks, um, Paige. You know, like Paige's Paige's match with Natalia, definitely re you know it it definitely raised Natalia's stock in my opinion because that match if you watch Natalia and Paige from NXT, you'll be blown away not only by how well the match was was paced but how fluid the storytelling was and that's where Natalia shines but she needs opponents that can make that work and the problem is that if you take out AJ and um 
you know, you know, if you take out AJ, and I kind of even want to say maybe maybe Tamina, and that's to a to a degree. There's really not much else in terms of development with the Divas. Now, the funny thing is that the Bella Twins, I'll give credit where credit is due. And it, the, the Bella Twins, the, the one with Daniel Bryan has improved as a wrestler. You know, she definitely has improved as a wrestler. Tamina on Monday night, I'm going to get into that. Jay, thank you for bringing that up. She, <laughs> Tamina, Tamina's, uh, you know, she's, she's, put it, she's put it on there. As for as for the Bella that's with John Cena, three three things have come out of that: implants, shorter shorts, and 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 and, and that's it. And and the occasional the occasional strongman moves that she picks up from John Cena, like she had the chick in the in the torture rack. Was it the torture rack? Not not this week, but I believe it was the week before in a tag match that she did a nice little torture rack style spot. But we'll get into that anyway. Biggie Langston took on Damian Sandow in a match that I thought would be a lot better than it was. I felt I felt it was too short. I mean the match the match came in it was about a 5 minute match and it was okay, but again, Damian Sandow is in the Dolph Ziggler category. You got a guy he's up here, he's 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 viewed as this this end all be all and then it's just like not to say that that a feud with Langston is bad. Because it's not. On the contrary, I think Damian Sandow can bring a lot out of Biggie Langston just from a, um, a wrestling standpoint. But I felt that the story itself had no buildup. It had nothing going for it. Just, oh, Sandow's challenging for the belt, even though he was a guy that was a Money in the Bank winner. Just saying. But it was, it was a passable match, but I felt it could have been better. Meanwhile, the Tag Team Fatal 4-Way match was probably the highlight of the night. Because there were so many great things that happened in that match. Just so many great spots and so many, you know, just really, really good performances from from all from all the guys involved. Even Ryback and Curtis Axel were bearable in that match. And it's funny because we were talking about it at work and everybody was like, wow, you know, Ryback isn't bad in a tag team situation. And the reason I said, you know, I agreed with that statement is because there's less focus on Ryback's wrestling when he's in a tag match. And that's the thing. When you're looking at Ryback wrestle, he has a lot of great power spots, but it's mostly very, very robotic movement. Like, that's one of the things. He really doesn't seem very fluid executing the rest of his moves. His clothesline spot is good. The The shell shock spot, depending on who he, he, he hits the move on, is good. But like watching the the punch kick punch kick exactly Valley he, he he's very he he seems very stiff in there he's not he's not fluid Curtis Axel on the other hand as much as people dislike him and I know a couple of guys in the chat can't stand him Curtis Axel he's, he he knows how to throw the punches he knows how to how to make the matches work very well and Goldust is probably on one of the best tears I've seen in recent memory it was a a fantastic fantastic match. Um, you know the the big show and, and Rey Mysterio. It's it's easy to you know look at them as as big and little uh, as um you know monster from across the street from Beetlejuice and his son, but um, it they, they were good. 
Jay says Axel's new shirt is mad disrespectful. Yes, I, I'm not a fan of the shirt. Definitely don't like it because it's it's you know it's true. It kind of it kind of makes it seem like he's shitting on his dad, but it is what it is. I, I'll share it. You ordered it eighty five seventy two. Really? I I mean to each his own. Um, I don't know. Looking at the shirt at first glance, I was like, eh, you know, but um. <laughs> Mortis says, and I quote, Goldust ages like Benjamin Button. <laughs> oh, shit. It's true, man. Goldust is in a, Goldust must have jumped in a Lazarus pit to, to, to look as rejuvenated and as fresh as he looked. But, um, again, the, the match from start to finish was very, very good. I really enjoyed a lot of the spots. Everybody was on point. Um, of course, the real Americans continue to develop and they continue to grow as a tag team, which I like. And it's funny because, you know, I've talked about Claudio Castagnoli and I actually shared a match that he had with Daniel Bryan or Bryan Danielson for those that don't know wrestling beyond the WWE. Um, I recommend you guys check it out and you guys see what the deal is. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you look at a guy like like him, you look at him and you go, you know, Antonio Cesaro, he's a, he's a guy that's going to be the future of this business. And while that, I do agree that he's a guy that's probably going to be a, a, a great main eventer within the next year or two. I feel he makes Jack Swagger better. It's almost like Jack Swagger is playing the role of Chris hero, except Chris hero is better than Jack Swagger, but still, um, Antonio Cesaro brings, brings something to the table. That's, that's helping Jack Swagger be a better performer. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of Jack Swagger's work as a whole, but his tag team work with Cesaro, the the intensity that's displayed in their matches, it's good. It's definitely good. And it's true, Antonio brings experience. He brings experience, but he's also bringing, he's bringing camaraderie into the equation. Like, you see that him and Swagger, they look like they have genuine chemistry in there like they have genuine connection when they do their matches initially they seemed a little disjointed and I think that was just an adjustment period but now they look they look really good in that in their tag team matches and I'm and I'm I'm curious to see if and when they split them up what happens in Jack Swagger's case because you know it's funny Val says Jack Swagger's a poor man's angle Jack Swagger's problem has always been the mic work and the lisp the lisp it was, is what fucks him up. It's hard to take him seriously when, you know, when, when he's cutting a promo and that lisp is, is, is fucking him up. He, he, he needs to stay with a manager. And, and to go with what Slick said, definitely, Henry and Langston look good, but that's just a setup for Langston and Henry to feud down the road. That's all that is. Even though they, they look good, you know, it just, it's just um, that's a setup for a feud. It's coming. Jay says Cody has a bad lisp as well. You know what the funny thing is with Cody? Cody's lisp is be very apparent only when he's saying certain things. Like Jack Swagger's entire promo is like hearing a promo from Sylvester the Cat. Seriously, it's like it's 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 insane that he's that he's trying to to cut a promo and I, and all I can think of is Looney Tunes. See, Cody's lisp is it's okay because his father is Dusty Rhodes and it's not like Dusty Rhodes is, you know, Dusty Rhodes is, is mic work is, 
He's, he has a list too, so it is what it is. But overall, the tag match, definitely extremely enjoyable. Now, we had a couple of matches that were thrown in, the filler matches. R-Truth took on Brodus Clay in a match that really could have, it could have, you know, it could have gone either way in terms of how I felt about it. R-Truth continues to be a, you know, a consistently good performer. The thing with Brodus Clay is that, Brodus Clay came in, his gimmick was on point, everybody was digging his gimmick, and then it just it just came to a screeching halt. Then you paired him with, with Tensai, and it kind of gave him a bump, but now they're trying to make him like this main event player, this heel, this, this big heel, and I'm looking at him, and I'm just like, I can't, I can't really, I can't really take you seriously, dude. Like, I don't understand where, um... You know, where you're coming from with regards to being a main event player. Now, if they're trying to give Brodus like a run with a with a secondary title or something, you know, it's 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 weird. But the problem is that it just it just doesn't see I you know what I feel like? I feel like Brodus's gimmick was effective when he first debuted, when he was Alberto Del Rio's henchman, because you didn't really know him, and he just looked like a big badass dude, and they were really kind of playing up that he was a bodyguard for Snoop Dogg, that worked. Then when he just became this dancing, high yellow, Barney the Dinosaur looking motherfucker, it just, it just, ugh. you know, it was, it was, it was weird. It was weird to me. And that's the problem. Like, like, you take him and you turn him into, you know, hip-hop Barney the Dinosaur and you send him out there. And the the beauty of this entire program is that it's given new life to Tenzai. Tenzai looks very motivated. He's lost some weight. He's not wearing those stupid-ass little trunks that make him look like, 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 like a, you know, you know those canned biscuits that you pop open? That's what, that's what he looked like. That's what Tenzai looked like when he wore the trunks. Since he's very, he was very, you know, light skinned He looked like a box, like a can of biscuits that popped open, and you didn't really, you, you know, you didn't really pull the entire can apart. That's all I ever thought of when Tenzai came out there in them little ass trunks. Of course, it's true. Sweet tea can work. That's that's the thing. If you watch Albert's work, let's be let's be real. If you watch Prince Albert's work in Japan. You were, when he was, um, what the hell was he? He was giant. What the hell was he in Japan? Uh, what the fuck was he? 85, 72. Give me a hand. What did he, uh, giant Bernard. He was giant Bernard in Japan. If you watch some, thank you. Thank you very much. 85, 72. If you, if you pull up some giant Bernard matches and, and you see them, you'll realize that Tenzai is a good worker. The problem is that WWE wanted to do the whole stupid cartoony gimmick where you know oh I, I escort you to the ring yes I hold the rope open for you it was just it just didn't work because it was such a such a stereotypical shitbag gimmick his strong style it works and and you know they really they really dropped the ball with him the strong style that he has it you know what's funny if you if you guys were watching WWE when they did the faction with Matt Morgan um, Nathan Jones, Brock Lesnar, and Albert, who at the time was A-Train, you'll realize that he had a ton of potential. A-Train was a problem when he was part of that faction because he was out there killing motherfuckers dead. 
You know, he was he was killing guys dead when he was a train. And, and, you know, they had him as part of the whole thing with with Lesnar and Morgan and Nathan Jones. It worked. It definitely worked. And then you just go and you drop the you drop the ball with regards to how you want to how you're presenting him. And like I said, he, he got a resurgence working with Brodus, but it's like you're going to push Brodus as the heel and then you're just going to leave Tenzai in mid-card hell? Are you going to put Tenzai with Xavier Woods? I mean, that might work, but I really feel that that Tenzai should have been the one to get the heel run because, like I was just saying, you know, the strong style and just letting him just run wild. Hell, I would put Tenzai back with Paul Heyman and kind of reference the old days when him and Brock Lesnar were running buddies, you know, because that that's the kind of shit, like... Tenzai should be a Heyman guy. Seriously. Like, Tenzai should be a guy that you put with Paul Heyman because Heyman, he's a good guy to have around when Brock Lesnar isn't. That's what I'm saying. Like, everybody thought that Ryback, you know, Ryback was going to be that guy. The problem with Ryback is that he was just, Ryback was damaged goods as soon as they turned him heel because all that momentum that he has as a face went out the fucking window. Now, if you put if you put Tenzai with Heyman, there's a lot of built-in story there. You could reference his relationship with Brock Lesnar. You can reference, um, you know, him working with those guys. If WWE signs Matt Morgan, I would put Morgan back together with Tenzai, and let them have a run run at that. I see a lot of you guys are talking about Tyson Tomko. Tyson Tomko got arrested in a bathroom because he had um. I believe it was oxy. He had oxy pills that he was taking in a bathroom and he seemed to have like too many of them when he got arrested. So for those curious about that, Tyson Tomko, the last time I read about him, he was getting arrested for having oxy oxy pills on him. So that that'll answer that, of course, Wikipedia or the Internet are your friends. But that was the last I remember of, of Tyson of Tyson Tomko. So there you go. But yeah, you know, Tenzai should be the guy getting the the single the singles push brodus the the barney the, the barney the dinosaur fucking high yellow gimmick just it's it's run its course it has run its course anyway the other bathroom break match we had kofi kingston and the miz in a no disqualification match and the problem with this match is that once again there's no real build up for these guys and i'll tell you why when the miz turned on kofi it allegedly they said that creative forgot that the Miz's his his ABC family movie was coming out and they turned him heel and they totally forgot that he that he was in that movie then the following week they were like oh you know it was just very competitive these guys they're trying to test each other they're trying to be as competitive as they can be so they had to kind of backpedal so that the Miz can promote his fucking movie and then all of a sudden you drop the ball and you make him heel again it, 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 was, it was just such a clusterfuck. And, and the fact that you're trying to make this feud relevant with zero buildup kills me. It kills me. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they botched, they botched the, the, this feud because they turned The Miz when the movie came. It's like, listen, nobody gives a fuck. Nobody cares. You put The Miz in a movie when he, he's shitty as a heel. I mean, he's shitty as a face. The Miz as a face is as boring as... The Miz is pretty much as boring as this bottle of water I'm holding. 
That's how boring he is. Unobtrusive. Hell, this water's from Target. It doesn't even have excitement. It's just, oh, vanilla bottle of water. That's the Miz. The Miz is a vanilla dude as a face. He is shit. When he was a heel, when Alex Riley turned on him and the crowd actually cheered for Alex Riley, that's when you know you're onto something. Like, 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 think about it. Like, think about the fact that Alex Riley, people cared about Alex Riley when he turned on The Miz. Everybody was like, oh, yeah, you know, and everybody was into the whole Alex Riley thing because The Miz was such an effective heel. When The Miz was in the tag team with more with John Morrison, he was at his best. 100%. Hell, when he was with R-Truth, it was it wasn't bad either. But face Miz just doesn't work. And the problem with The Miz as a heel now is that you're putting him in a feud with a guy that can't cut promos. Can somebody find Prince Nana and give him a job and have him manage Kofi Kingston, please? Somebody, somebody get Prince Nana in the WWE and allow him to manage Kofi Kingston because I'm sorry. Kofi Kingston suffers from from Shelton Benjamin syndrome, which is super athletic, super awesome, but his mic work is shit. The only time that I gave a fuck about Kofi Kingston was when he was on that whole ruthless aggression shit where he did that spot with the where he was feuding with Randy Orton. That was the last time that I gave a fuck about Kofi Kingston. Since then, he comes out, boom, boom, boom. Look at my fucking t-shirt wrapped around my head because that's that's what I do. Nobody's done that shit since 1997. Who wears their t-shirt as a do-rag or as a bandana anymore? Who does that? Seriously, somebody hire Prince Nana, make him Kofi's father. Thank you, Jay. Do something. But seriously, leaving Kofi out there to try and get over as a face without a manager is a recipe for disaster. And you know what's going to happen? Kofi Kingston is going to become another never was. In other words, a guy with all the talent, all the tools, but just never got there. Never got there. That's the problem. Like, Kofi Kingston is going to become a never was. He's just all the talent, all all the athleticism, but he doesn't have that it factor. He's missing that one small thing that can put him over the top. Even if you're going to give him a manager to help him improve over a couple of months, but give him something. Don't just feed him to the wolves. And that's the problem. Vicky helped Dolph Ziggler because Vicky carried the heat while Dolph Ziggler delivered with the wrestling, and as Ziggler became a better performer, a better performer, a better performer, the need for Vicky was less and less and less. And, but, but Kofi, he needs that. He needs a manager. I don't care who it is, but he needs one. Make Booker T his manager. What's Booker T doing? Something. But it, it's, 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 again, Justin Gabriel's another guy. Justin Gabriel... Incredible athleticism, has a, a, an awesome finisher, but he is going to be another never was because you need managers. You need them. You need guys that can go out there and, and, and shoulder the burden while the wrestlers go out there and do what they got to do. And, and I see guys in there, they're citing other people, you know, uh, Tyson Kidd. Tyson Kidd is, is weird because Tyson Kidd's mic work isn't terrible. I, if I let, Let's be honest. If I had to rank the three of them, I'd say Tyson Kidd would be number one. And you can probably interchange 
Kofi and Justin Gabriel strictly from athleticism. But in terms of mic work, Tyson Kidd is a better worker on the mic than Kofi or the or this other guy. It, he just is. That, that's all it is. I don't understand why my... Oh, my tablet alerts are still on. Shit. Can I shut that down? Because I don't want them all playing on air. Uh, volumes. Hold on a second. There we go. Anyway, so... It's true. You know, these guys, you look at them and you say to yourselves, oh, these guys, they have such awesome finishers. It's They're, they're amazing to watch. But... It's they, they have nothing else. They have nothing else. And it's unfortunate. You mean to tell me that that Tyson Kidd couldn't go out there and have awesome matches with Daniel Bryan or or Seth Rollins or Ambrose? You, you know what I'm saying? Like you look at the kid, Gabriel, Evan Bourne. Thank you, Jay. These are all guys that they are all pretty much interchangeable. Meanwhile, Kofi Kingston, he has he has the opportunity to be great. Think about it. WWE doesn't have a bona fide African-American star they can get behind. Kofi Kingston is that guy. Well-spoken. He's well-spoken. You know, he's intelligent. He speaks well. You know, he's, he's, he's well-spoken. He's intelligent. He doesn't have the typical hood look, you know. Because I'm sorry, that's the we've talked about race in the WWE. Kofi Kingston is Kofi Kingston is Barack Obama with dreadlocks. That's what Kofi Kingston is. He is he is that guy. He is the black guy that that you that you won't cross the street when you see him. Versus our truth, and Titus, you know Titus is good, but Titus he's Titus flip flops. Every time I look at Titus, I feel he should be in, in a Friday movie. Doing doing work on a on, in a Friday flick, because he's you know he's just that kind of a guy. He's very comedic. He has great timing, but he's just he's saddled in that funny black guy gimmick. You know, I like I like Titus O'Neil. I feel Titus is 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 tremendous. But it's true, Kofi Kingston. He's you know, he, that's what it is. Like Kofi Kingston is he's Barack Obama. He's wrestling Obama. That's it. Like nobody looks at nobody looks at Kofi Kingston and says, "Yo, you know that that that's that's a guy that I don't want my kids to to be to look at as a role model." They're gonna look at Kofi Kingston like, "Oh, he's you know a nice nice well spoken black man." That's what it is. It's simple as that. It sucks, but it's true. It's true. Anybody that disagrees, look at Kofi Kingston over the years. He is exactly that. All like like eighty five seventy two just said, all kids love Kofi, and that's it. But once the kids get to be our age, they're like, oh fuck this guy, fucking guy sucks. But kids love him, you know the bright color <laughs> because he jumps around a lot. Mortis, that can be taken. Damn it, Kofi, go out there and jump around, jump around like a Mexican jumping bean, even though you're black. No, seriously, I mean. Like that's that's what gets me. Poor poor Kofi Kingston. It's like yo, go out there, smile, jump around, wear you know, put put pop culture things on your tights. I have to admit, he he does have cool designs with the trunks. Like when he had the Masters of the Universe trunks or the Power Ranger trunks, you know, go out there and do that, be that. But he's more than that. 
And, and and it's true. You see, Mortis says, hey, he's always fun in the Royal Rumble using chairs to bounce around on. Yeah, but so was Shelton Benjamin. Think of all the awesome spots Shelton Benjamin did in the Royal Rumble, in TLC matches. He's Shelton Benjamin just with dreadlocks and, 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 less, and less marketing. At least Shelton Benjamin had Charlie Haas to help him out and Kurt Angle. Kofi got shit. Kofi doesn't even have the pleasure of a Kurt Angle or a Shelton Benjamin to help him carry the load. He's on his own. Go out there and jump around and fucking, you know, be happy and smile a lot. That's it. Anyway, Daniel Bryan took on the Wyatt family in a very, very solid three-on-one handicap match. It was very good. Bray Wyatt, of course, getting the victory with the sister Abigail. Um, it It was a good match. I really enjoyed it. I felt that the Wyatt family continues to improve leaps and bounds every week. And um, above all else, I feel that Bray Wyatt within the next year or two is going to be a main event player, as, as terrible as that is, just because he, he tells such a great story. He tells such a great story, not only in his mannerisms and his promo work, but um, just the way that he, that, he, that he moves the story along. And that really worked for me, especially in this match. Don't get me wrong, Harper and Rowan are are tremendous, and they're going to be a, a great asset to the tag team ranks. But Bray Wyatt, he adds he adds something else to the equation. And this is what I was saying earlier about having the it factor. Nobody gave a fuck about him when he was Husky Harris. It took a cheap Hawaiian shirt, a weird hat, and an electric lantern to bring it all together. And that's what some of these guys need. They need a refresh. They need a reboot. That's what it is, you know? It's like, yeah, Harper Harper is definitely Bruiser Brody, 8572. I agree. And it, and it's true. Think about it. Who cared about Husky Harris in the Nexus? Who cared about that guy? Nobody did. It took a beard, a hat, and, and some Hawaiian shirts, and, and, and Max Cady from Cape Fear to bring it together. And I see some, you know, Mortis said I liked Husky Harris, 8572 says I liked him, but trust me, I have a laundry, I know at least 10 people that are like, yo, what the fuck is this, why does this guy have a job? And I used to say, oh, you know, IRS was his dad, and they were like, oh shit, IRS was his dad, like, like people would be tripped out, they're like, really, IRS was his father? I'm like, yep, and it was, it was, it was weird, yeah, yep, IRS is his dad, Val, that's right, and Waylon Mercy is definitely part of that gimmick, 28572, I do agree. But again, you know, it's it's you look at him and you're like, wow, you know, this guy, he came in, he was in the Nexus. I'm I look at Bray Wyatt the same way I look at Dolph Ziggler, which is they came out of shitty gimmicks and have excelled. In Dolph Ziggler's case, it it has been for nothing, but in Bray Wyatt's case, it's been a reinvention. He has rebuilt himself completely. Completely. And it's worked. It has worked for him. And I'm I'm very very happy to see how well he can he can work with guys like Daniel Bryan because you know what it is people don't realize this and I say this all the time working with upper card guys makes mid card guys better even if they're even if they're not even if you know Bray Wyatt isn't really a mid card guy working with the Daniel Bryans the CM Punks it, it's going to be better for him in the long run. Because this is what what I always say with regards to these guys on the come up, the guys that are on the come up that work with the with the more talented performers, they take something from that experience and they become better in the process. 
Simple as that. You mean to tell me that when Damian Sandow had that four-star match with John Cena, that we didn't learn something from Damian Sandow, that he didn't take something away from that match with John Cena? Think about that. Because everybody's like, oh, Damian Sandow, you know, he's garbage. When he had that match with John Cena, we got to see a glimpse of what can happen to a guy if given the opportunity. Same thing with, 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 with Bray Wyatt. Bray Wyatt is a guy that he's going to work with the Daniel Bryans, the CM Punks. You know, he's going to work with the guy, he, you know, with Kane. And it's just going to be better for him in the long run. Seriously. I honestly feel that he's a performer much, you know, much like, and same thing, Ambrose as well. Uh, Seth Rollins, I feel, is going to be another guy that if given the opportunity, he's going to run with the ball. And for those of you that don't think that that's the case, just look up Tyler Black on YouTube and see Tyler Black's work in Ring of Honor, and you'll understand. As for Ambrose, Ambrose has all the tools. If you look at some of Ambrose's work in CZW, some of the promos he talked about, listen, Dean Ambrose cut a promo where he was talking about his mother being a crack whore and his niece being put into foster care. It is without a doubt a chilling promo. It is chilling the way you got to see it. Slick, if, if you can, uh, look up Dean Ambrose promos or look up John Moxley, J-O-N-M-O-X-L-E-Y, and there should be one video. It should be the first one that shows... His best promos. He cuts a promo talking about like a title opportunity being taken away from him. And it reminds him of when they took his niece away because his mother was a druggie and his father left. It was it was a masterful promo. It was probably one of the best promos I have seen this week. And it's funny because a lot of guys, you know, a lot of you guys may be like, oh, you know, how does Rich prep for the show? And that's one of the things I like to do. I look up a lot of, you know, a lot of the the older stuff and I try to share what I can in the, in the, in the fan, on the fan page. But a lot of that stuff just gives me a different appreciation for certain wrestlers body of work. In Ambrose's case, there is so much, so much that, 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 that the WWE hasn't even scratched the surface with a guy like Ambrose. There's so much that's just underlying, that's waiting for the opportunity to come out. And when it does... Ambrose is going to be, he's going to be a, a major, major problem. Anyway, <clears throat> let's move on. Of course, your TLC match, um, I'll be honest. The TLC match was spoiled for me because of the results from Tribute to the Troops. Now, here's why. <clears throat> when they did the, tri- the Tribute for the Troops announcement, and whether it's, um, you know, if this is a spoiler, fast forward, but... When John Cena appeared at Tribute to the Troops, he did not have the belt. And a lot of people were like, how's the champion going to be at Tribute to the Troops and not take pictures with the soldiers with the belts? Blah, 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 blah. Allegedly, that was because, you know, they didn't want Randy there because, you know, Randy's a military deserter, whatever, make the case that it is. But also because John Cena wasn't going to be champion. Again, I don't know how legitimate that is, but I just found that to be a little odd that your champion wouldn't be there with the belt for the troops. I'm just saying. And it kind of it kind of just stuck in the back of my mind and I said, you know, maybe maybe John Cena, you know, he, maybe John Cena's going to lose. You know, maybe John Cena's going to lose the the match. And it kind of like I said, I left it alone and I went about my business. 
And then when he lost, it was it was weird, you know? I, I don't know why he was left off. Jay says that Randy has been a tribute to the troops. I remember him being there. Not recently, but I do remember him being there. I just found it odd that the guy who's your champion, being John Cena, wasn't there with the belt. Because that's one of the coolest things, you know, when the soldiers, when our, when the men and women of our armed forces are there and the WWE is letting them take pictures with the championship. You know, that's really cool shit. That's really, really cool shit if he's there with the, you know, the, like, the, like the troops taking pictures with the belt. So I just found it odd that, that you know, that Cena was, didn't have the belt with him. I just found it very odd. And I didn't, like I said, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. But I just said to myself, I think Cena's going to lose the belt. As for the match itself, the match itself was extremely, extremely well done. Extremely well done. There were a couple of things that that really worked in, in, in the favor of the match. Like, you know, the skull, Orton going for the skull punt, which is good to see him break that out. Uh, the, the You know, John Cena being handcuffed to the bottom rope and him tearing the turnbuckle off. Um... I think the guy on Reddit is Dolphin7792. For those of you that are curious for the from the for the Reddit guy, I think it's Dolphin, something like that. Um But yeah, the, you know, the, the Cena turnbuckle spot was you know, it was it was it was cool, but and, and honestly, I just there was a part of me that was like, oh super Cena strikes again. Because, you know, as soon as you see him take out the the turnbuckle and you're like, oh, here it comes, it's coming. But they really, they really did a good job of not swerving all of us, but definitely, um, you know, it was, it was weird that, you know, that they, they, they did that and it was such a swerve and they gave the belt to Orton. So I definitely am impressed with that level of, of storytelling that was done because I didn't expect them to really give the belt to Orton and not only that but give the belt to him in such a fashion that it just worked you know it worked effectively and 8572 you know he said it best they didn't want Cena to look soft it's true Cena definitely did not look weak in this match at all on the contrary definitely a lot of a lot of crazy bumps um but I'll tell you I'll tell you what gets me from this Orton gets the belts he is now the WWE World Heavyweight Champion, which honestly, I, it it rings it rings a bell. It works. It looks good. The thing that got me with this is that, all right, Orton is now your your undisputed champion. Great, Cena. What happens? With that said, let's get into Raw. So, Raw this week, uh, you know, it was it was a it, it, the opening promo was really cool. Was really good. Um, I kind of felt odd about Cena being the, um, you know, I guess the, the, the cheerleader for Daniel Bryan, because it almost gives the aura that Daniel Bryan needs John Cena in a way. And I'm sure that the Bella twins are going to be a factor in this. I, I smell it that they're going to, you know, use the relationship between the sisters to be a, a, a piece of the puzzle as to why John Cena is such a big supporter of Daniel Bryan. I don't know why, but I feel that this is all circling back to Total Divas. I might be wrong, but I really feel that way. But anyway, the opening segment definitely it worked. It was a um 
you know, it was it was it was good way to set up the match for the night. But again, like I said, it felt um you know, it felt weird. It, it like I said, it, it seeing him like, oh yeah, you know, I seeing John Cena going in there and blah 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 and and being such a a huge advocate and then I thought about it and I'm like these dudes are dating sisters they got to be friends you know quote unquote so it's to be expected like I said I see this total divas thing making its way in there I could be wrong but we'll see how it pans out uh Cody Rhodes and Goldust took on the Big Show and Rey Mysterio in a very good match I kind of I kind of am digging the uh Rey Mysterio uh, dropping the dime off the shoulders of the Big Show. I think it's a cool move. I like the, um, you know, I like I like the way that they that they helped gold us up. And you know, it wasn't heels and faces, just a very competitive face match. I like the way it went. Uh, Goldust sold that very well. I kind of had a feeling he might have got hurt. I'm hoping that's not the case. But if he didn't, he just sold that very well. It was really really good. Uh, we had a bad news Barrett segment. Which uh, here's the thing. The Bad News Barrett segments, they're all well and good, but they need to lead to something. Something. I don't know what it is, but it just they, they feel like it like it's a placeholder. You know, the question is, you know, what kind of what kind of a purpose are they serving with this? Yeah, he's there and oh bad news Barrett, hashtag bad news Barrett. That's great. But it's like, what is the end game? Where is this going? Because you have a guy in Wade Barrett who is a solid performer solid he has good mic work he has great match presence and he really he can go in the ring so to have him just standing there you know doing doing the whole and he has the gavel now decorum decorum, it's like all right that's cool but it's it's it just doesn't work like if they don't move this forward every time he's gonna be on tv it's just gonna be like that's all it is to me. I feel that there's no there's no cohesiveness. That's all I'm saying. It just it just doesn't work for me. Barrett Barrage was don't let's let's be real. The Barrett Barrage wasn't that great either. But whatever. It is what it is. Uh Fandango and Dolph Ziggler went at it one more time, of course, to give Dolph Ziggler the win back. Yeah. Definitely not the better match of the night. Meanwhile, though. I got to say that um, the Real Americans and, you know, Biggie and and Mark Henry had a fantastic match. I think the match went about about 12 minutes, maybe, but definitely a little longer than 10 minutes. It was a fantastic match. And I can I tell you that I was waiting in anticipation to see if Cesaro would do the big swing on Mark Henry. I was I was praying for it because I needed that spot. I needed to see it. I said to myself, yo, if Cesaro pulls the big swing off on Mark Henry, it's going to be spot of the night. And I like the way that they did it, too, because they were teasing it. They were teasing it, and it didn't happen. And it was just a, a just a, an entertaining match. Thank you, Val. Definitely an entertaining match. Um, I really wanted to see if, if Cesaro would have hit the big swing on, on uh, Mark Henry because that would have been a tremendous spot. You know, we've seen him do it on Brodus and some of these guys, but Mark Henry is a massive human being. Massive. So, to see that, I was like, oh man, he's going to pull it off. It's going to be sick. He didn't, but I have a feeling it's going to happen either way. Um, <sighs> Tons of funk. Curtis Axel and Ryback. It was just a setup for the turn. 
which was coming. It was uh, meh, to say the least. But we were redeemed by CM Punk having an awesome, awesome exchange with Shawn Michaels, of course, leading to a match with The Shield and The Usos, which, excuse me, which was, once again, very good. I really like the spot that they did um, where, you know, he tries to hit him with the elbow and Reigns comes in and hits him with the spear. I definitely, I like the spot. I thought that the spot worked. Um, it really did, once again, numbers for, for, for all the participants. The Usos continue to be entertaining. Um, the Shield and the Usos continue to have great chemistry. And, of course, CM Punk is CM Punk. Here we go. AJ Lee, Tamina, and Alicia Fox, who on Wednesday she's a face, but on Monday she's a heel, but on Friday she's a beautician, but the following week she works at a hair salon, but the week after that she works on Jamaica Avenue. Nobody knows what the fuck is going on with Alicia Fox. Nobody. Because think about it. She's a heel one week. She's a face another week. She's a, a heel for two weeks. Then she's a, That just shows that they got nothing going on with these chicks. So AJ, Tamina, and Alicia Fox took on the Bella Twins and Natalia in a match that was pretty much as paint-by-numbers as you can get up until Tamina ends up catching Brie Bella with a nasty super kick. It was nasty. Oh, it was it was it was it was bad. When when Brie Bella got hit with that super kick, this was all that I can think of. You got knocked the fuck out, man. And it's funny because she ended up putting on Instagram like a picture of a of a bloody towel, so definitely she got caught for real. Like I was like, "Wow, that was a that was a that was a nasty super kick." I was like, "Holy shit, it was it was it was the, you heard the crack and you just see Brie Bella holding her mouth like this, and I said, "Oop, she got caught." It was, it was a, it was a nasty spot. You know, it was, it was a, it was a nasty spot, but it worked. It was really good. Um, I think that it may have affected the ending of the match. AJ's Shining Wizard looked a little sloppy because I've seen her deliver the Shining Wizard, and it looks legit. Uh, but um. It was it the match itself was you know the get up and take a bathroom break match but that super kick holy shit it was just like I said a crack and Brie Bella just it, I thought of um, Marsha Brady getting hit with the football in the Brady Bunch and just screaming my nose my nose because that that's how that's how Brie Bella covered up immediately that's how she knew she was she was bleeding I was like oh that's that that was fucking serious. It was it was a it was a beautiful spot in an otherwise lackluster match. Anyway, of course the main event, Daniel Bryan taking on Randy Orton. Of course, Daniel Bryan having an awesome fucking match. Awesome. It was such an awesome match. And and of course, Randy Orton getting the victory, you know, the victory, so to speak, with the low blow. Daniel Bryan, of course, winning via DQ was a nice way to do it because it shows from a storytelling standpoint that Daniel Bryan has Randy Orton's number, that he can catch him if he wanted to. If they had a match with no DQ or something like that, that he would get him. And I like that. I like that from a storytelling standpoint. It works. Um, You know, Randy Orton comes in. I mean, John Cena comes in to help, ends up eating an ass whooping and an RKO for his troubles. Orton takes his belt and he leaves. It was a fitting ending. And it adds a little bit of dissension because Daniel Bryan can say, look, man, I didn't need you out there. 
And that actually can build a separate story as well. Because, yeah, Daniel Bryan can go in there and he can have his match with Orton, but he can tell John Cena, look, man, you know, I appreciate you coming out, but I don't need you coming out. I don't need you coming out there for me. I can take care of myself. I can fight my own battles. Uh, and, you know, th- that that can be a great buildup to a potential match between them because the 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 gimme is there so to speak you know it's 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 right there staring you in the face it's like all daniel bryan has to say monday night is like dude you know i saw you come out you took an rko thanks but no thanks i didn't need you out there i didn't need you to do anything for me thanks and it was you know and and that's that's what that's what i i hope they do because there's so much that can be done there it was very very easy it's very easy to go in that direction where they go remains to be seen. Anyway, let's talk about the rest of this week's wrestling news. Speaking of Daniel Bryan, uh, Ring of Honor, of course, jumping not jumping on the Daniel Bryan bandwagon, but they put out a very, very awesome two-disc DVD set that contains 15 matches of the one and only American Dragon, Bryan Danielson, a.k.a. Daniel Bryan. And the matches that are on here are all tremendous matches. On the first disc... Daniel Bryan versus Matt Seidel from Death Before Dishonor. That was from August 10th, 2007. Bryan Danielson versus Austin Aries from Take No Prisoners 2008. Fantastic. Daniel Bryan and Austin Aries versus Jimmy Jacobs and Tyler Black from the for a World Tag Team title match. Uh, respect is earned from 2008. Bryan Danielson taking on Tyler Black from New Horizons. That was July 26, 2008. You should check out that match on YouTube. Fantastic. Uh, Brian, uh, Danielson and Aries taking on Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin from 2008. Fantastic as well. One of my favorite matches, uh, Daniel Bryan versus Jerry Lynn from All-Star Extravaganza 4. That was from 2008. On the second disc, um, Daniel uh, Bryan Danielson taking on Mike Quackenbush was a great match. But one of my favorites... Uh, Brian Danielson and Roderick Strong versus the American Wolves. So that match alone is nasty. Uh, Brian Danielson versus Chris Hero, the final countdown tour. That was uh, September 18th, 2009. Amazing match. Uh, Danielson and Aries, that was for the Ring of Honor World title. The final countdown tour, that was from uh, September 19th, 2009. Uh, Brian Danielson versus Davey Richards. Uh, That was also from 2009. If you want to see that match, which is fucking legendary as well, look that up. And of course, my my all-time favorite, Brian Danielson versus Nigel McGuinness from Glory by Honor 8. That was September 26, 2009. Oh yeah, American Dragon versus Kenta Kobayashi. Holy shit. Thank you, 8572. That match was a problem. American Dragon versus Kenta Kobayashi was ridiculous on multiple levels anyway if you want to pick that up make sure to go to ring of honors website it's 15 matches two disc dvd set and uh, you know it's it's there's so many legendary matches in his, in his roster but but these matches were fantastic american dragon versus samoa joe american dragon versus homicide is another one which is fantastic i really liked his feuds with homicide they were really good um, but again, like I said, 15 matches to this set, definitely check it out. So the AJ Lee situation, which I had mentioned earlier on in the segment, 
um, involved a uh, an incident at tribute to the troops with a uh, lady named Michelle Beadle, who was there. She was uh, the host for tribute to the troops, and she used to date CM Punk. Now, I don't know what happened, and there's conflicting stories, but she approached CM Punk, said hello to him, and I don't know where, where it went sideways, but AJ Lee, like, cursed this lady out backstage, and it, it was insane. Everybody thought it was uh, a work, but it wasn't. Turns out, from, from what I'm hearing, it's legit. And um, CM Punk, of course, he went to Twitter, and, um, you know, he, he kind of... Uh, you know, CM Punk kind of downplayed the whole thing and kind of said some stuff about WWE in the process. Here's the funny thing. Everybody feels that uh, there's two there's two stories with this. Some people say that AJ didn't really go crazy the way they're saying. Other people are saying that she did and that WWE's in, in um, damage control. But the fact remains that when celebrities and superstars inter- interact and it doesn't go according to plan, I remember the Sean Merriman incident with him and CM Punk, which was, you know, which was interesting. There's always weird issues that happen with celebrities. So, especially with this chick who dated CM Punk, I'm sure I'm sure there was already some tension in that regard. But what ends up happening out of this entire fiasco is, like I said, AJ's probably gonna lose her belt. And, you know, it's just gonna it's just gonna put a blemish on the tribute to the troops event. And what from what a, a lot of websites have been saying you know, Tribute to the Troops is a huge event, and it's one of Vince McMahon's favorite projects. He loves it. So for there to be controversy from this event because of AJ, I'm sure is definitely ruffled quite a few feathers backstage. So like I said, let's definitely keep an eye on AJ's title run, which I'm sure will end sooner rather than later. Also, I wanted to... um wanted to talk about something interesting. Last week we were talking about the WWE Network and the evolution of the executives and where this, where the company is heading. So I read a, an article on Variety, which um, right now WWE is looking to increase their, their television licensing fees. And what they plan on doing is that they're possibly planning on making SmackDown live. So what they're saying is, and and here's an interesting thing. They want to make SmackDown live because not only, you know, of course it's going to increase the cost of production, but it would also open up new advertising and licensing rights, which would allow WWE to make more money. Now, here's the thing with that. If WWE decides to make SmackDown live, I would move SmackDown to Wednesdays. I'll tell you why. Because Fridays is, 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 even though the ratings for SmackDown are high, in the Friday night slot, I think that Wednesday's a better slot because Thursday you'd be competing with Thursday night NFL and TNA Impact if you even want to call that competing. I would like you could do Raw Monday, SmackDown, uh, you know, you could do Main Event Tuesday, and then you can do uh, SmackDown Wednesday. And maybe if you wanted to give NXT a TV run, you could throw NXT into Friday taped because people watch NXT on Hulu anyway, but it'd be a great way to give uh, people access to program to that programming that don't have Hulu. Because like I said, putting, putting SmackDown into Thursday, you're competing with the NFL and, you know, competing with TNA Impact, which, eh, you know, I feel it's too much wrestling in one shot. I'd, like I said, I'd like 
SmackDown on Wednesdays if you're going to do it live because it's good. The problem with keeping SmackDown taped is that the ratings are going to be affected because people also read the spoilers. So if it doesn't look that good, why are you going to watch it? I personally DVR SmackDown and I usually watch SmackDown late at night on Friday or at some point Saturday. Wednesday is different because Wednesday is a nice open time slot. You're probably going to compete with, with you know, some, some decent Wednesday programming, but Wednesday just works because you'd have Raw as a great lead-in on Monday. There were rumors that they did want to go have SmackDown go to three hours, Jay, but I didn't, you know, I didn't see any mention of that in the Variety article. They want to do a live version of the two-hour broadcast. So I think three hours for Raw and two hours for SmackDown Monday and Wednesday, you know, works. And I think that that the 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 dangling carrot of live television will get more advertising money and WWE definitely wants to make more licensing revenue. So, you know, it definitely it definitely has the potential to work. Moving SmackDown to Thursday, some people we were talking about this at work and people are like, "Yeah, but the Thursday night NFL games aren't that good." So, you know, SmackDown would be okay in the Thursday slot. I'd rather the Wednesday slot and yeah, NXT on Fridays, like I said, would definitely wor- definitely work. But SmackDown needs to be on Wednesdays. So we got a a very surprising release I want to talk about, and that is the release, uh, uh, the alleged release of Richie Steamboat. Of course, he is the son of Hall of Famer Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, who was released from a developmental contract allegedly. Steamboat has been out of action for quite some time due to a very serious back injury. Now, I don't know if that release is because it allows him to to recover and then they'll have him come back. But um, it's pretty serious that the son of uh, the dragon gets released from his contract. We'll see what happens in the coming weeks. And if WWE even announces it, like I said, it's it's a report that, you know, it's been going around a couple of sites. Uh, WrestleZone, uh, PW Insider. Jay, I, I know, yeah, main event is on Wednesdays, but I'd move main, you can move main event to Fridays. Why not just move main event to Fridays? I'd move main event to Fridays or maybe do do something like Saturday or something. But main event, it's, what is it, an hour? Fuck it, throw it in Friday slot. At least an hour isn't that bad. Eh, anyway. So last bit of wrestling news, there is... Um, A lot of reporting going around that WWE is going to unveil a brand new company logo. Allegedly, they've they've had 15 different types of logos that they're looking at. But this new logo is supposedly going to be completely different than the official company logo that exists today. So I'm sure maybe if they launch the network, we may see that new logo as well. Who knows? But um, as of right now... It seems we will be getting a brand new WWE logo. All right. So that wraps up our wrestling segment. uh, The last one of 2013 on a live broadcast. Let's get into some video games because we actually have quite a bit to discuss on that front as well. So when we last spoke about Uh, The UFC game, we were discussing George St. Pierre and Alexander Gustafson in the running to be on the cover with John Jones. Well, for those of you thinking that GSP would be on the cover with John Jones, 
I am sorry to report that Alexander Gustafson actually won the fan vote and will be appearing alongside John Jones on the cover of EA Sports' first UFC game, which will be released this spring on Xbox One and PlayStation 4. So there you have it. It's weird, not to, no disrespect to Alexander Gustafson, but I would have thought that the you know you want to put your champions on there. Like honestly, I would have just made the cover all the current champions. Simple as that. Weidman, GSP, Rousey, who's in the game, you know, and Kane. It would have just it would have just worked. And Demetrius Johnson, but fan voting definitely changed the scope of things and Alexander Gustafson is your second UFC cover athlete. So a lot of you guys that have been picking up Xbox One and PlayStation 4 have picked up, you know, Call of Duty, um, Knack, a lot of different games. But one game in particular that seems to be not only being a, a high scoring game in terms of critic scores, but also a game that has a high sales volume is NBA 2K14, which now is the best selling sports game on next gen consoles. And the fourth best-selling game on next on you know the fourth best-selling next-gen game overall. That's that's pretty big for NBA 2K14 because that game, when you look at it compared to NBA Live, the the difference in graphics is is it's it's apples and oranges. It is insane. So definitely good to see the crew at 2K getting uh, the accolades they deserve. NBA 2K14 is a very enjoyable game, and I have to admit, it definitely looks next-gen on the new consoles. It's not like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't scream uh, upscaled graphics. It actually looks next-gen, which is very nice. So kudos to 2K for the accolades, of course, not only for sales volume, but also for sales overall. Nintendo is in the news this week, and I know a lot of people have been talking about this because of a lot of things that Nintendo announced at their Nintendo Direct event. Of course, the first being the brand new Zelda game called Hyrule Warriors, which is um, looks a little bit like Dynasty Warriors, looks very cool. Uh, they also showed off Mario Kart 8 and Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze, as well as Yoshi's New Island for the 3DS. Now, Hyrule Warriors is being developed by Tecmo and Koei, and that's going to be launching in 2014. Mario Kart 8 has um, a bunch of new characters, including uh, Rosalina uh, and a couple of baby versions of your usual characters, Baby Mario, Baby Luigi. They showed off some really cool courses, which are which are kind of awesome and um, definitely gets people talking. Definitely gets people talking about Mario Kart and the possibilities. Also, uh, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze looked very good. That game launches February 21st. And Yoshi's New Island, which is actually being produced by the creative director of the original Yoshi's Island, was also showcased as well. Now, a couple of things. Morta says Nintendo Direct was the following. Zelda, Mario, Mario, Donkey Kong, Mario, Mario, Kirby, and Mario. True. But think about it, Mortis. What else are they going to announce that people are going to give a shit about? I do understand what you're saying, but let's be realistic. What else is Nintendo going to announce that people are going to care about? Call of Duty with no online? You know? Or uh, GTA with no up, with, with no, you know, with no um, DLC? Metroid, sure. A new franchise, def- look, 
I don't I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying what I'm saying because I'm I'm shitting on what you're saying, but I'm saying it from the standpoint that Nintendo <clears throat> let me adjust my seat. Nintendo's becoming I don't want to say a one trick pony, but they're sticking with what they know. Now, there's a couple of things that people have been talking about and it was I read a very interesting article that said that they're going to drop the price of the Wii U in the new year and that they that Nintendo hopes that with the price drop of the Wii U and all these first-party title announcements, that it will get them back in the good graces of gamers. Because Nintendo knows that if the Wii U bombs the way it has been next year, that they're going to be behind the eight ball. Which raises a very interesting question. With all the, the great feedback and revenue that they're making with 3DS titles, why why are they, you know, why has it been such a bad sell for the Wii U. Now, of course, the easy option is no games. The other option is that the system is, is expensive and the uh, the dual screen, the controller has has li- had shitty self li- uh, uh, shitty battery life, which Slick has talked about as well. Mortis says Nintendo isn't dumb, though. They know their sales will increase once Mario Kart and Smash Brothers comes out. Now... Slick says the system is not expensive. Okay, but based on some of the, the the feedback and some of the articles that have been published this last week, and you guys can check them out. I think uh, Game Industry put out a really good one. They were they were talking about Nintendo's pricing strategy and how it relates to games. Now, the way I see it is the system is what two ninety nine. People, people are looking at it, and this is what they were citing. They were saying that the system is cheaper, but that people feel that the Wii U, for all its for all its advancements, is 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 considered last generation when it's looked at side by side with the PlayStation Four and the Xbox One. I don't I don't agree with that logic personally. I feel that the the Wii U has a lot going for it, but the only problem is games. Now, with all the announcements that they made at Nintendo Direct, they're looking to remedy that situation. But if if they're, you know, Mortis says that Smash Brothers and Mario Kart are going to sell consoles. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But here's the question. How many, how many consoles will they need to sell in order to, to, to make themselves look appealing in the grand scheme of things? Slick says... It's idiotic when you consider that the infrastructure of the PS4 is similar to that of the Wii U. Okay. Again, you have no arguments for me because I want Nintendo to succeed. I want Nintendo to make that money. I want Nintendo to make an impact. I've, you know, Nintendo's a a brand that I've grown up with since I was a kid. Original NES, Rob the Robot, not, countless hours playing Gyromite. Um, pow, I had a power glove countless Nintendo cartridges, Clash of Demon Head, which was one of my favorites, original Metal Gear, RC Pro-Am, Bike. Like, I grew up with all this shit. I've owned every Nintendo console up until the Wii U, and that was just because, you know, I didn't feel compelled to buy it. And it's true, I'll be honest. If, if Mario Kart and Smash Brothers comes out and it looks good, and Donkey Kong Country comes out and it looks good, I'll pick it up. That's that you know that's just how it is. In terms of the shelf life of the games, P- 
people people talking about the system not having any games, sure, I understand that. But when it does come out with games, it comes out with games that keep you engaged for quite some time. It's as simple as that. When Slick was playing Lego City Undercover, he played it for quite some time. Am I right, Slick? I know that when he was playing it, he, he put in a lot of hours into that game. I remember that. I can attest to that. But the problem is that they're not putting them out there. They're not putting them out there the way they should. You know? And that and that's what I'm saying. Like, think about it. You have Star Fox. You got F-Zero. You got, you got so many other franchises that you can kind of fill in the gaps. Like, like I'll, I'll be honest. If I had a release cycle, let's say Mario Kart, Donkey Kong Country, Hyrule Warriors, and let's say a new Kirby title were all finished. Every every 60 to 90 days, I would continue dropping first-party titles just to stay in the hunt. The problem is that you make these announcements, and let's say you make these announcements in December, you're not going to see these games until April. And again, by the time April rolls around, it's been out of sight, out of mind. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's keeping the, the games out there. Nobody's saying, hey, man, you know, these fucking titles, they're awesome. I can't wait. Like, they're not, I don't understand who's handling the promotion and the marketing at Nintendo, but it's like you announce all these games, and then it's crickets up until maybe a couple of weeks before the game's release. Like, they're not doing enough to keep the game out there. I remember, and let's see how many of you guys remember this. Do you guys remember when Super Mario 3 came out on the NES, that they used to do the commercial with all the people chanting Mario? And, and it would form Mario's face. And they started showing those commercials months and months and months and months before. I remember that when they unveiled that commercial, that was actually an event. I think that they unveiled it during an episode of The Simpsons or some shit. Where it was like, oh, make sure to stay tuned for your first look at the brand new Super Mario Brothers. You know, Super Mario Brothers 3. And I was super excited for that because that's when that's when you were doing stuff like that that would get people excited and get people talking. Nintendo doesn't do that anymore. It's crazy to me. You have all these household names, all these name brands that you could just churn out like this at the drop of a hat. You know? Yep, The Wizard was one giant Nintendo commercial. Absolutely, but think about it. You know how many people watch The Wizard to get a glimpse of Super Mario 3? Do you remember that shit? I got one when Super Mario World came out on the Super Nintendo. Do you remember the the marketing blitz that was behind not only the game itself, but the console? Now it's just like, that stupid family trying to, to, the kids trying to sell that family on buying the Wii U. That, that is one of the, the worst commercials. Terrible. It was terrible. And that's what I'm saying. Like Nintendo, they've seen, they've lost their way, not only in terms of just releasing titles in, in a consistent fashion, but just in marketing as a whole. Like right now, I saw Hyrule Warriors. I said, fuck, I'll, I want to play that. I want to play it. They said, oh, it's going to launch in 2014. Okay. But if you say, hey, I'm going to launch it in 2014 and I don't see that game till June and the first game out of this entire announcement doesn't be, isn't seen until March, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't help. It doesn't help. And that's what kills me. 
Like Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, you gave us a date, February 21st. That's great, because guess what? Nintendo didn't put out shit for the Wii U in December, and they're not putting shit out for the Wii U in January, unless I hear otherwise. So, I'm excited for Donkey Kong Country, because it's in February, which isn't that far off, but at least it, it gets you excited. Like, that's that like that's what gets me. I, I feel... Like when we were growing up and a game was announced, people were cheering and there was there was a fever pitch and it became an event. It became something massive. It became the, a blitz of advertisements. Now, Nintendo, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. And the thing is that that in the article that I had read, I believe it was either Game Industry or it might have been on um, on Uproxx's site. They were saying that if Nintendo, if the Wii U bombs... That, that Nintendo may may need to rethink their strategy. And I'll be honest, if Nintendo turned around next year and said, you know what, we're pulling out of the home console business, but our, our characters are going to live on on other consoles, I guarantee you that if you put out a brand new Mario game on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, it would make shitloads of money. Shitloads. Again, not to say that that's the right thing to do, but let's be honest. If if they said, "Hey, we're not going to do um we're not going to do consoles anymore except for the 3DS, but we're going to release our 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 first party titles on Xbox 1 and um PlayStation 4 with achievements." Thank you, Slick. Um <clears throat> would how many of you would legitimately buy that? Cuz I'll be honest, if they if they said, "Hey, you know, we're going to release um, you know, Super Mario, new Super Mario World, and we're going to release it on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. You know, it's going to have achievements and DLC and all this shit. I I would uh, dude, I would buy it immediately. I would buy it in a heartbeat because that's the kind of thing. Like my loyalty to Nintendo titles, it's it's always going to be there. It's just that the fact that that I don't want to spend $300 on a paperweight like it's different with like the 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 Xbox and the PlayStation 3 because there's different games that come out that that can consume both systems. Like I finally figured out how to get the most out of my PS3. I pick up a lot of the single player games, a lot of that stuff I pick up on the PS3, multiplayer stuff, uh stuff that I want to get achievement for or sequels to games that I've played on Xbox 360, I pick up on the 360 just because sometimes the achievements tie into each other, whatever. But that's what I do. In Mario's case, if Mario came out on the PlayStation or, or on the Xbox one, people would, people would lose their fucking minds. They would lose their minds. And again, I love Nintendo. I want Nintendo to succeed. I want that so badly, but they're, they're, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's Reggie. I don't know if they're just they're they're scared. I don't know if it's just that they're they're so in they're so entrenched in wanting to do things a certain way and not want to look at the fact that it's just not working. I mean, even NES Remix, NES NES Remix looked really cool. Like I was like, fuck, I'd play that. You know, that looks pretty fun. I'd I'd definitely play that. But again. You're 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 not you're not playing with the full deck of characters in your arsenal. Like I said, a Star Fox game wouldn't be bad. F Zero wouldn't be bad. 
You know, like there's there's other there's other IPs that they got that they can use. Hey, and you know, how about doing a brand new version of Excite Bike with next gen graphics and allowing people to play it on the on the 3DS with Street Pass and you can have people create special tracks that other people can race on. Stuff like that. You know, next gen Excite Bike. Something like that, you know, maybe bring back RC Pro Am, make it a uh, downloadable game from the Nintendo eShop that you can play with other people via Street Pass. Something, you know, just just think outside of the box. Grab grab these other IPs that you had and do something with them. That's all I'm saying. <sighs> Hell yeah, pro wrestling from the NES, man. Absolutely, Mortis. Wasn't is that the one with Starman? Yes, right. I th- that or was that um was that Tecmo World Wrestling with Starman? I haven't played, it's been ages since I've played that, but yes, seriously, like, if you bring that back with, with, with spruced up graphics, and threw it on the 3DS, and, and allowed people to play, and you made the game like three or four dollars, people would jump on that like this, people, people would be all over that, because it's something, people would be like, wow, that looks kind of cool, you know, you give, you use like Fire Pro graphics, and you throw it out there, and people just, from a nostalgia standpoint, people would jump on board. I'd buy that shit day one. Absolutely, Mortis. Absolutely. You know? I would definitely do that. Definitely. All right. Last bit of gaming news to wrap things up. If you have, if you picked up Dead Rising 3, they actually put out some brand new DLC, which was supposed to be coming out on Christmas Eve. Unfortunately, uh, the DLC has been delayed. The add-on pack was called Operation Broken Eagle, and it's now been pushed back to the end of January. Um, sucks just because people were really excited about Dead Rising 3's DLC, but if it's meant to work out, um, you know, work out any any of the bugs, so be it. So before we wrap up the uh, gaming segment for this week, I definitely am gonna want to put some stuff on the fan page during the holidays just to find out what you guys got for Christmas. Uh, so be on the lookout for that stuff on the fan page just so we can keep the dialogue going until MTR comes back in 2014. But either way, that's going to wrap up this week's gaming segment. Be on the lookout for that. And of course, any other content over the course of the holiday break. Anyway, let's get into this week's entertainment news. There is a decent amount of stuff to discuss And one of the things in particular that I wanted to get into was some of the uh, casting news. We also may have some what the fuck movie news for this week. But first and foremost, of course, is the, uh, I guess, the plug. The plug for uh, this week, of course, is My Take Radio's entertainment segment is brought to you by Ripped Apparel. Ripped Apparel are the makers of some of the great pop culture t-shirts that you see me wearing on various MTR broadcasts. I actually don't have one on this week because it's laundry week. This week I am rocking uh, the good old Splatterhouse t-shirt, but definitely make sure to check out the crew at Rip the Apparel. Their pop culture t-shirts are only 10 bucks, and there's a new t-shirt daily. We try to share them on our Facebook fan page. And of course, if you click the banner on mytakeradio.com, it helps us out as well. Again, riptapparel.com. Let's get into this week's entertainment news.
So I really want to open up with the first bit of entertainment news this week, and it is definitely of the what the fuck variety, and it is this gem. According to Variety, Paramount Pictures is uh, going to reboot the Naked Gun franchise, and get this, Ed Helms from The Hangover will be playing the role made popular by Leslie Nielsen, which was Detective Frank Drebin. I'm sorry, Ed Helms is not funny. I find more humor in a cat taking a shit than in Ed Helms doing anything. I hated that guy on The Office. I really could care less about that dude in The Hangover. He is not funny. He's just, he's not. And and the fact that you want to take something so iconic as the Naked Gun franchise. The original Naked Gun came out in 1988. I was eight years old when I saw it. The second one, The Smell of Fear, was in 1991, and 33 and a Third came out in 1994. They were all f- amusing, and they were all awesome for different reasons. Of course, the original Naked Gun was the best with OJ, but even still, rebooting a series that still, to this day, makes me laugh quite a bit with a guy who, I'm sorry, is just not that funny, is a recipe for disaster. It really is. I'm sorry, like you could, if, if you would have got somebody of a higher caliber comedian, maybe. But Ed Helms, I'm telling you, Ed Helms is just dog shit. He stinks. He fucking stinks. I'm a little bummed because I couldn't get Slick on to talk about this, but it seems that Sony Pictures is looking to create a universe much like the Avengers has done with the rest of the Marvel films, but with Spider-Man. Uh, Sony Pictures announced that they're going to create a brand new legacy for Peter Parker on screen, including, but not limited to, a Venom solo movie, plus Amazing Spider-Man 3, and a separate movie uh, centered around the Sinister Six. So there you have it. We're getting a Sinister Six film, a Venom movie, plus another Spider-Man. Now, here's the thing. You're looking to establish things on par with the Avengers... And you're going to like Venom. Venom is very weird because Venom, you could do it a couple of ways. If you're going to go with Ultimate Spider-Man Venom origin, we know that that Venom is, you know, a different a different breed of Venom. If you're going to go with Lethal Protector Venom in a solo movie, then you're going to need to you're going to need to either introduce Eddie Brock because you're unless you're going to go with Flash Thompson Agent Venom. But I don't think that that's going to work only because the Agent Venom mantra needed to ex- didn't you know you can't that couldn't exist without the whole Eddie Brock being the symbiote. Now Venom is Venom is very strange because like I said, if you're going to do a, a solo film dedicated to Venom, he you know you you're going to want to do it in a way that makes people really want to go and invest money and energy into seeing this done. My concern with Venom is that you have—he's—he's he's, as much as people hate to admit it, and as cool as he is, Venom is a very violent character. He's—you know—same thing with Wolverine. Thank you, Slick. A Venom movie needs to be rated R. You're looking at a character whose costume eats people. Simple as that. The Venom symbiote eats fucking people. You know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's an extremely violent character. 
to to release it under a a, a PG umbrella is going to be a recipe for disaster. As for doing a movie dedicated to the Sinister Six, again, yeah, you could do a movie about the Sinister Six, but there's no way that you can tie that movie together without Spider-Man. If you want to do a separate Sinister Six movie, that's great, but Spider-Man is Spider-Man is the is the pin in that entire in, in that entire web. He it, he is the centerpiece. He is the pin. He is the middle of the of the puzzle. You can't do a solo Sinister Six movie without Spider-Man in any shape, way, or form. And it's true, like like Slick said, the whole point of the Sinister Six is to kill Spider-Man. So if you don't if you don't do that, if you don't go in that direction, you're just creating a movie to keep the Spider-Man franchise from going back to Marvel. Because that's what it is. As soon as you start you know, un- unleashing all these different characters and all these different, you know, all these different stories, you know that you know that you're going to need to set it up with ample time. I don't know. I kind of I'm concerned that they want to go this route, especially like I said, solo Venom movie is is if it's not uh, an R-rated movie, or at least PG-13, and then an unrated version. It's a recipe for a disaster because even the Wolverine, which was definitely better than X-Men Origins Wolverine, uh, the Wolverine, the unrated version, is the is exactly the way Wolverine needs to be. Do yourselves a favor if you saw the Wolverine in theaters and you weren't a hundred percent sold on it. Do yourselves a favor and pick up the un rated version and watch it you'll get a different appreciation for the movie definitely definitely a different appreciation all right so last week we were talking about the terminator reboot and the fact that they were still looking to cast uh sarah connor turns out that they finally narrowed it down and officially now amelia clark who plays daenerys targaryen on game of thrones will be playing the role of Sarah Connor in the new Terminator film. Uh, the new film will be directed by Alan Taylor, who of course has worked with Amelia Clark on Game of Thrones. Amelia Clark joins Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jason Clark. Of course, Schwarzenegger will be playing the Terminator, and Jason Clark will be playing John Connor. This film will be the start of a brand new standalone trilogy, which will also coincide with a brand new Terminator TV series. The film is scheduled to hit theaters July 2nd, 2015. The next bit of what the fuck movie news kind of goes into small screen news a little bit. And that is that they are planning on rebooting, get this, The Odd Couple. Now, The Odd Couple is a show that I used to watch on Nick at Night. I have a a great appreciation for it. Um, Big fan of Walter Matthau. Uh, it seems that this new one, they want to get Matthew Perry from Friends. Now, when you hit, when you think of Matthew Perry and you think of him in The Odd Couple, you automatically assume that he's going to play Felix Unger, who was the, the neat freak of The Odd Couple. But it seems that Matthew Perry will be playing Oscar Madison, which doesn't make any sense. Oscar Madison was the more brusque, the more surly, uh, the messier of the duo. And I'm a little confused because when I look at Matthew Perry, I don't really see surly. I don't see, you know what I mean? When I look at Matthew Perry, I see neat freak, you know, uptight. 
uh, quirky, weird. That's what I see. But it seems that now they're going to go with the odd couple for the new generation, and I already see it just not working. It's not. And, and the fact that you're going to reboot this and you're going to have, you know, Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry hasn't been relevant in years. Every show he does usually lasts for a decent amount of time. People speak highly of it, and then they just drop the ball, and it gets yanked off television. According to what they're saying, they want to do um. They want to do it for CBS. Um, you know, possibly with a with a film series as well. I don't think um. You know, it's just it's just not not the way to go. You know, Walter Matthau and Art Carney did the, did it on Broadway in 1965. Of course, Jack Klugman and Tony Randall are, you know, did the show. It ran for, I believe it was five years. And then the movie sequel had um, Walter Matthau and um, Jack Lemmon, which was, eh. Then they did the reunion. Then they did the new odd couple on ABC with, with eh. then the female odd couple. That They've tried so many different ways to do it, and it just doesn't work. I like Mortis's idea. Mortis says they should get Simon Pegg and Ed Frost for the odd couple. Make them English. Uh, uh, Nick Frost. Thank you. Um, I agree. That that would be a really good idea. Pegg and, Pegg and Nick Frost doing an odd couple film or a TV series. Maybe throw it on BBC and then have it here on BBC America. I would definitely watch that. Mortis, that is a fantastic idea. Definitely a gold star to Mortis for that. I'd watch that. Peg and, Peg and Nick Frost just being silly, fucking being assholes. Oh, I'm all for it. I am definitely all for it, especially with, um, you know, Peg playing uh, Tony Randall's character and Nick Frost playing Jack Klugman's character playing Oscar Madison. Oh, it'd be fantastic. Definitely. I, I could I could dig that. Props for that, Mortis. Nice work. So, of course, it should come as no shock that The Hobbit Desolation of Smog killed it at the box office, earning the number one slot, making $73.7 million, followed by Frozen in the number two slot. Tyler Perry's A Medea Christmas was number three. The Hunger Games Catching Fire was number four with $13.2 million, bringing its grand total to $357 million. Thor The Dark World rounds out the top five with an additional 2.7, bringing its total to 198.1. Out of the Furnace was number six. Delivery Man was number seven. Philomena was number eight. The Book Thief was number nine. Homefront was 10, earning $1.6 million, bringing its grand total to 18.4. So the next bit of news that I'm going to talk about a lot of people, and this relates to our wrestling fans, Always talk about how The Rock should come back to wrestling, blah, 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 this, that, and the third. Allow me to explain to you why The Rock is going to be nowhere near a ring unless it's for a huge payday. Forbes released their list of highest grossing actors for 2013. Now, of course, Iron Man 3 was the highest grossing film, so it'd be a no-brainer that Robert Downey Jr. would be on this list. But get this, The Rock is the number one highest grossing actor of 2013, earning $1.3 billion. This is, re- this is in thanks to Fast and Furious 6, G.I. Joe Retaliation, plus the smaller films he did, Snitch and Pain and Gain. 
So $1.3 billion for the one and only Dwayne Johnson. Do you really think he's going to come back and break his body down when he's making $1.3 billion without breaking a sweat? I'm sorry for those of you that are jaded wrestling fans. There's no way in hell he's going to come back and put his body through the ringer when he can make $1.3 billion with less work. Seriously. Robert Downey Jr. comes in at number two, earning $1.2 billion. Steve Carell was number three. Vin Diesel was number four. Sandra Bullock was number five. The late Paul Walker was number six, earning $789 million. Billy Crystal and John Goodman were tied for the number seven slot. Chris Hemsworth was number nine. And Jennifer Lawrence was number 10. So there you have it. And here's the crazy thing. Every actor from the third slot to the 10th slot earned in the millions. Only Robert Downey Jr. and The Rock earned in the billions. Just just food for thought. And forget it. If, if, if The Rock does anything with Marvel, you know it's, it's, it's game over at that point. $1.3 billion is a number that you just cannot ignore. In some comic news, it seems that the rumors are finally true that Joseph Gordon-Levitt will be working with Warner Brothers to star and direct in a, a film adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Of course, the 75-issue series ran from 1989 to 1996, and um, they've been trying to get it into theaters for such a long time. Now it seems that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fully invested and is trying to not only direct the film, but also star in it as well. Mortis says, uh, that's how much their movies earn, not themselves. Nope. Dwayne Johnson earned $1.3 billion, dude. That's not their movies. That's how much money they made. I'm going to, I'm going to paste the, 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 the list in the chat room so you guys can see that craziness. There you go. Anyway. So yeah, I'm actually kind of pumped to see the Sandman come to the silver screen. I think that the that that's a very very deep book. I think there's a lot of great storytelling to be utilized there. Of course, Neil Gaiman uh, did a tremendous job with that series. I remember reading a couple of Sandman books when I worked at the comic store uh, during my high school years, and I really liked the artwork and the storytelling. Since I jumped into it kind of late, I used to just read the books that people would um, would trade in. And I really liked it. I'm, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm a hardcore Sandman fan, but I think with the advances in special effects and just the, the great storytelling that can be done, um, you know, of, of course, um, there's if they do it right, they can focus on not only the Sandman, but also, you know, Death and some of the other brothers and sisters that um, are part of the Sandman universe. I definitely am curious to see how they're going to do it. And um, hopefully, you know, uh, I really hope that Joseph Gordon-Levitt does a good job with it. I think that the Sandman character of Dunn Wright can really yield uh, great, great box office revenue for DC. So we shall see what's happening. Did I mess that up, Mortis? I think I did. Oh, shit. Thank you for correcting that. Hold on a second. Mortis has just brought something to my attention. Ah, yes. Uh, sorry about that, guys. I actually misspoke. The The totals that they that they came up with uh, stemmed from the grossing, uh, the grosses for all their movies. 
My my apologies for explaining that incorrectly. Thank you, Mortis. Um, the box office totals that I mentioned, the the actor totals that I mentioned, stemmed from the grosses of the films that they had. Of course, Robert Downey Jr. had Iron Man three. The Rock had Fast Six, GI Joe, Snitch, and Pain and Gain. Thank you, Mortis, for that. For those of you that uh, tuned in and heard that, I needed to file a correction. So the Forbes numbers stem from the films that they made that allowed them to gross um, for the top 10 list. Like I said, Dwayne Johnson was number one. Robert Downey Jr. was number two. Uh, But, of course, with The Rock, you got to consider he had quite a few movies under their belt. So there you have it. Thank you, Mortis. I'll make sure to throw that in the show notes. And, of course, uh, huge assist for helping me clarify that. Anyway, we, we are hitting the home stretch. We got 10 minutes of live airtime, so let's get the remaining entertainment news out of the way. John Chu actually said that there is a possibility that Channing Tatum may return as Duke in G.I. Joe 3. But, spoiler alert, if you saw G.I. Joe Retaliation, you know that Duke was killed off. Now, when asked about it, John Chu said that you never know. Storm Shadow died in the first one and came back in the second one. And the, then other characters have died and never come back. The G.I. Joe world, the best thing about it is you never know who's coming back and who's not. Listen, Storm Shadow's death wasn't 100% confirmed in the first G.I. Joe. It's a lot different than in, in, in Retaliation where they legitimately killed Duke off and people were pissed off. So... A uh, little bit of backpedaling. I think that the reason they want to kind of bring Channing Tatum back in there, obviously, is because his star is rising. He's getting a lot of, you know, he's getting a lot more mainstream roles, and it's definitely a factor in selling tickets. Of course, the third film is going to include a mix of old favorites and newcomers. So, of course, he went on to say that the ones that I know are fan- that fans will love, and also ones that I've been wanting to see on screen. Now, here's the thing. I really like the second G.I. Joe. I thought it was it was a very good popcorn flick. It, it's weird because, you know, you wrote Destro out of, of the equation, and I, and I complained about that in my review. But you also did some good things, like Cobra Commander wearing the correct costume, uh, the really cool thing with um, Zartan being the one that killed Storm Shadow and uh, Snake Eyes Master. I like that. That was a, a really cool trick. But I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see the twins. I think the twins would be cool characters to see. Um, I'd like to see the Dreadnoughts. Maybe Zartan. If you want to bring back Channing Tatum as Duke, you can bring back Zartan and include the Dreadnoughts. Um, Even though some people are going to say, oh, it'd be cool if we could see Nemesis Enforcer. Let's not get crazy. Let's not get crazy. Because, you know, when I talked about this, with one of my coworkers, I was like, yeah, man, they want to bring back Duke. He was like, dude, they got to do Nemesis Enforcer and Cobra Lie. And I'm like, all right, let's not get crazy. Cobra Lie and, and the stuff from G.I. Joe, the movie, that's that's some hardcore shit. And that involves a lot of work and a huge budget. If you want to do like Globulus and Nemesis Enforcer and Pythona and Serpentor, it's going to require a you could probably do a, a G.I. Joe movie and include Serpentor just because I, I'd like to see Dr. Mindbender on screen, but you you can't do the Cobra Law shit. That's crazy. That is crazy. You can't do it. 
I'd love it. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to see live action Globulus and Nemesis Enforcer and bring back Sergeant Slaughter. That'd be kind of cool for a few for a, for a couple of laughs, but it's it's too effects heavy. I mean, if anything, like I said, maybe maybe we could do Serpentor just because that character is. I, I've always been a fan. I like Serpentor. I always thought he was really cool. And in the newer G.I. Joe comics, he's been written really, really well. Um, but, again, we'll see. John Chu did a good job with Retaliation. I liked it, like I said, as a popcorn flick. But trying to bring back a guy who was clearly fucking dead, it, it's, it screams cash grab. So the last bit, of course, is Marvel casting news that have been pretty much uh, not confirmed until earlier this evening. And that is that Paul Rudd, will be playing Ant-Man in the brand new Ant-Man film directed by Edgar Wright. Originally, Paul Rudd and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were considered frontrunners for the role, with Edgar Wright directing and co-writing the script. But it seems that it is official Paul Rudd will be Ant-Man in the, up- in the upcoming Ant-Man film. Of course, what this means with regards to the Avengers remains to be seen. But for those of you that don't know, Ant-Man, of course, is Henry Pym who is one of the original Avengers and creator of the Pym Particles. He also becomes Giant Man. Um, It's going to be interesting because Pym is also the guy that created Ultron, who, of course, will be the antagonist in the Age of Ultron films. But as of right now, we don't know how the films will will correlate with Ant-Man and whether Ant-Man will be involved in the Avengers sequel when when it's released. Anyway, the Ant-Man film is scheduled... Excuse me, to hit theaters July 31st, 2015. So there you have it. Paul Rudd is officially Ant-Man. I'm curious to see what you guys think about that. I'll make sure to pose that on our Facebook fan page. I'm curious to see what you guys say. And uh, that's actually going to wrap it up. That's going to wrap up the final MTR of 2013. Uh, A couple of things. We got seven minutes of live air time left. I just want to take the opportunity and uh, thank our staff. You know, Slick. Quark, Blade, Jay, Andrea, and Josh for everything they do uh, in front of the camera, well, in front of everything and behind the scenes as well in terms of getting uh, MTR out there, whether it's in terms of content or in terms of live stuff. I also got to thank my crew over at the GFQ Network. I got to thank Suncast, who works behind the scenes to ensure that our video is on point and our audio is working. So, of course, it wouldn't... You know, I I can't thank Suncast enough and the rest of the GFQ family for helping MTR make the transition to video in 2013. We hope to improve that going forward. So definitely thanks to those guys. And of course, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for, of course, tuning in every week and dealing with all our craziness, whether it's audio issues, video issues, or whatever other things come up. That's the beauty of doing live shows. Um, Like I said, it it wouldn't be a show without you guys and your participation as well. So thank you guys for your support. And last but not least, on behalf of myself and the rest of the MTR team, happy holidays, uh, Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate, Festivus. Anyway, enjoy that shit. Enjoy all the gifts you guys, I'm sure, are going to get. And uh, that's going to wrap it up. You've just heard My Take Radio episode 208 for Thursday, December 19th, 2013. If you have any questions, concerns, or would like to be a guest on a future episode of My Take Radio or on our special app exclusive MTR Behind the Mic and MTR Beyond the Mic, you can email me, Rich, at mtrhost at mytakeradio.com. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at My Take Radio. Become a fan on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash My Take Radio. Add us to your circle on Google+. And, of course, you can also follow our boards on Pinterest. If you're on Instagram and you want to see all my random photos that I post of food and countless other pop culture things, it's My Take Radio underscore Rich on Instagram. Last but not least, if you want to get the complete MTR experience, make sure to pick up the official My Take Radio app for iOS and Android. For Android devices, you can pick it up on Amazon's Android Marketplace. And for iOS, you can pick it up on iTunes. It's $1.99. Cheaper than a cup of coffee, you get 96K stereo episodes of MTR. And of course, you get original content, mobile wallpapers, and a ton of other cool stuff as well. Last but not least, you can always find archived episodes. <clears throat> excuse me. You can find archived episodes on Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, uh, the Zoom Marketplace, uh, Spreaker, and TuneIn Radio as well. Last but not least, if you are using the Mixler app, you can actually listen to the show via. Um, actually, if you're a Mixler listener, you can listen to the show with the Mixler app available on iOS. I found that out earlier today. And I wanted to make sure that got out there. Uh, but that's it. Anyway, I will catch you guys in 2014. My Take Radio returns live on January 2nd at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. But during the next two weeks, we'll be trying to put out different types of content, whether it's on the site, pre-recorded, or a ton of other stuff as well. All right, guys, that's it. Let's take it away, shall we? All right, outro music for this week. Uh, Let's see what we're going to go with. We got a couple of uh, different songs we can go out with. Let's look for something from our friends at OC Remix, who are always uh, hardcore supporters of the show. I think we're going to go out with... um, You know what? I think it would be good to go out with Street Fighter II's Frets of Fury. The artist is Vertex Guy, and you can download that and any of the other music from ocremix.org. The letter O, the letter C, remix.org.